Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Luna. And I'm Ed. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're taking a trip back in time to Paris in the 20s, where we'll encounter some of the great artists and writers from that era. We'll discuss nostalgia for the past and whether there ever really was a golden age. And we'll talk about one of Hollywood's most prolific and controversial directors as we explore the 2011 Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris. Luna. Hello, Ed. Hello. I'm excited for this new combination of people. Um, you may remember Luna from our Lost in Translation episode and our last holiday episode. And you may remember Ed from Chasing Amy, The Philadelphia Story, and My Best Friend's Wedding. And now you're here together. Very exciting. And today we're going to be talking about Midnight in Paris. And in Midnight in Paris, the main character, Gil, has the opportunity to go back in time to Paris in the 20s, where he gets to meet some of his literary and artistic idols. And so today, for our introductory question, I wanted to ask both of you, if you had the chance to go back in time and interact or hang out with any artists, artistic or historical figures, like who would you choose to go back in time and visit and why would you choose them? I don't know that I would actually want to hang out with anyone specifically. I don't know enough about the rules of time travel to not know that I'd <laughs> mess something up terribly. But if it came just to like the experience, honestly, it would either be what's in this movie or Harlem in the 20s or just sometime in the 50s so I could see Buddy Holly perform. Oh, that's a good one. Mm. Yeah, all of those are good. Yeah, I, I really like that you're taking care to consider the implications of your time travel, though. I don't think Gil really thought about that too much. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I'd say for me, I I was also drawn to this movie because I do feel an attraction to, you know, 1920s Paris. So I think that would be interesting for me. But then again, I'm not too terribly attached to any one time period. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I really like being right here right now. <laughs> That's also a very healthy attitude. I like that. I would say I was thinking about this a lot and all my historical and artistic figures are in vastly different time periods. Part of me would really like to go and actually hang out with Shakespeare when he was you know, first performing his plays, even though as a woman, I probably couldn't be involved in that. But like, I would just love to see the process that went into that. And maybe there could be like a Shakespeare in love type situation where I dress as a man. I don't know. <laughs> and and then I thought Jane Austen would be super interesting to talk Ooh. to about just her observations about life. And then Edith Wharton, I'm really fond of her writing. And I, I don't know if we would have gotten along or not, but I think she would have certainly been interesting to talk to. So those are some of my choices. And then and, Freddie Mercury. How can you not talk? go and hang out with Freddie Mercury? I don't know. And the thing with these questions that always like trips me out a little bit is like when we talk about going back to the past and doing these things, like we're always talking to like the most famous people from the past and we do not <laughs> talk to the most famous people in the present. So like I feel like if I went back to the 1920s, 
I'd be talking to Steve, the guy who drives the trolley, <laughs> most likely, and not Cole Porter. <laughs> that is true. That is true. You might not necessarily end up in such a rarefied atmosphere, but um, you could maybe use your future knowledge for an in. I don't know. Anyway, mm. <laughs> you are right, though. I think time travel movies in general have a tendency to make the main characters much more important than everyone else. Like we were talking about this with Groundhog Day, how like, how crazy is it that Phil gets to loop everybody else's lives like thousands of times, you know, <laughs> like what are the implications for all those people in his loop? I don't know. Time travel seems to be a very egotistical genre in many ways. Hmm. That's an interesting way to think about it, actually. <laughs> We, we came to it after like very hours of speaking. So <laughs> anyway, so we don't have too many hours of speaking. We should get started. Um, but before we get started today, just a few notes. First, as usual, there will be a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we will warn you when the spoiler section begins. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom. And our Twitter handle is at everyromcompod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And now we're going to listen to the trailer for Midnight in Paris. I mean, this, this is unbelievable. There's no city like this in the world. You're in love with a fantasy. I'm in love with you. Dad's here in business, and we just decided to reload a lot. <laughs> oh. That's great. We can spend some time together. Well, I, I think we have a lot of commitments, but I'm sure it's... We'll, what? Right. If I'm not mistaken, Rodin's work was influenced by his wife, Camille. Rose was the wife. No, he was never married to Rose. I hope you're not going to be as antisocial tomorrow. I'm not quite as taken with him as you are. He's a pseudo-intellectual. Slightly more tannic. Than the 59, I prefer a smoky feeling. Carol and I are going to go dancing. Yes. Oh. We heard of a great place. Interested? No, no, no. no. Sure. I, I, I don't Come want on. to be a killjoy, but I, I, I need to get a little fresh air. Not that late. I'll probably end up going on another little hike tonight. Where'd Gil run off to? I've been walking around Paris. Where do you think Gil goes every night? He walks and gets ideas. Mm-hmm. Why are you so dressed up? I was just doing a little writing. You dress up and put on cologne to write? Because you know how I think better in the shower and I get the, the positive ions going in there. I had a private detective follow him. And what happened? I don't know. The detective agency says the detective is missing. I'm in a very perplexing situation. This is like the worst trailer for anything we've done, I think. <laughs> My opinion. Would would that trailer make you want to see the movie? No, not even slightly. No. Yeah. Not they really. Anyway, they kind of show the, the time travel stuff, but they don't have any of them speak and that was like by far the strongest part of the movie for me so so just to give you a little bit of information about uh today's movie 
uh, Midnight in Paris. It was released in 2011. It was written and directed by Woody Allen. And it's got a great cast starring Owen Wilson, Marion Cotillard, and Rachel McAdams, among many others. So the basic premise of the film is that Gil Pender, played by Owen Wilson, is a successful screenwriter and aspiring novelist on a trip to Paris with his fiancée, Inez, and her parents. Now, Gil loves Paris, particularly the idea of Paris in the 20s, and his fiancée can't understand his fascination with the city. One night, Gil gets lost walking the streets of Paris and is summoned into an old-fashioned car at midnight. That car takes Gil to a party where he gradually realizes he has traveled back in time as he meets F. Scott Fitzgerald, Zelda Fitzgerald, Cole Porter, and other important artistic figures of Paris of the 1920s. Gil continues to travel to the past nightly and begins to fall in love with Picasso's mistress, Adriana. So some interesting facts about the movie. First of all, Woody Allen came up with the title Midnight in Paris before he had any plot. He just wrote a plot around that title, which I guess works for some writers pretty well. Wow. The movie doesn't seem to be strictly committed to reality when depicting its historical figures, um, but various clues in the movie would put the time travel in the movie between maybe 1926 or even 1928. So I think it's kind of a really a rough, you know, things are thrown together the way they often are in movies. And, you know, to further support this in a panel at the Cannes Film Festival, Alan said this about the historical figures in Midnight in Paris, quote, it was easy for me to write about all these people because I was writing about them in a satirical way. So to write dialogue for Picasso or Hemingway or Scott Fitzgerald or Zelda Fitzgerald was simple because I wasn't trying to make them meaningful and deep and profound characters, but I was trying to make them just amusing and entertaining. So in terms of the cast, Rachel McAdams and Owen Wilson had previously worked together in the 2005 rom-com Wedding Crashers. And this is also kind of a Marvel rom-com. I was contemplating doing a Marvel rom-com series, which I'm not doing anymore, but I'm still going to always point it out that this movie has the two major players from the Loki TV series. Tom Hiddleston is Scott Fitzgerald in this movie. And Owen Wilson, of course, is the star. And it also has Dr. Strange's love interest, Christine Palmer, played, of course, by Rachel McAdams. And another interesting casting note, while shooting the film, the then president of France invited Alan to the Elysee Palace, and Alan ended up casting his wife, Carla Bruni, as the curator slash guide at the Rodin Museum. The film shot for a total of 35 days over seven weeks, and it is Woody Allen's highest grossing movie, earning $145.2 million, with a budget of just $17 million. So yeah, this movie did very well. It connected with a lot of people, despite that trailer. <laughs> so I'm interested um, kind of in your opinions of the movie, like what is your history with it? When did you see it? Is it something you've watched often? And what do you think about it now? I watched it specifically because you asked me to, because somebody played Cole Porter in it. So I watched it two days before recording. And your, and your impressions. I liked it and enjoyed it far better than I expected. It, nice. especially, I mean, especially having seen the trailer beforehand, you're right. Like, I was like, this is going to not be great. Uh, and, and I had a good time watching it. I really did enjoy a lot of, a lot of it. And then Luna, what's, what was your history with this movie? 
Well, you know, I don't remember exactly when I first watched it, but I'd say it must have been about 10 years ago or so. And I just, I mean, I'm a romantic. So you just give me a movie called Midnight in Paris, I'm in, Mm. right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I do also, I just, the cast was fantastic for me. So that really attracted me. And I don't know, I just dove right in. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw it at the movie theater. And I'm pretty sure I saw it for similar reasons, because it was called Midnight in Paris. And then I found out it had like this like time travel kind of aspect to it. And the romanticism of that. And then I think I might have seen a clip of like Adrian Brody's portrayal of Salvador Dali, which is like still my favorite part of the entire movie. So yeah. And have you watched it over the subsequent years, Luna or like? Yeah, actually, it's funny, because I've watched it with Ish couple times now since then and I feel like it's one of those movies that we can always enjoy you know like yeah it it puts us in a good mood it's funny lighthearted, and yet also makes you feel grateful for you know your own time in a way so yeah yeah for sure yeah like Lee and I actually like were in Paris and we'd like gone through one of those exhausting tourism days where you like walk everywhere and you like weren't even thinking about how far you walked until you get to the hotel room and you're completely exhausted and we turned on the tv and midnight in Paris was on the tv and we're like well this is like kind of meta but we'll 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 watch it yeah and we were like those are the same streets we were just walking because we stayed in Montmartre so yeah yeah. that's so cute and uh, I think for us too, like Ishtar and I, we just watched it a few days ago, just just to remember exactly what was happening in the movie. And we traveled to Paris earlier this year and, you know, just revisiting all the places that we had been and just being like, oh, we were there. It was, it was, it's very romantic and it's fun for us. So I appreciate that about it. Yeah, I think the movie, especially if you love Paris, if you have a a special affinity for Paris, Mm. like this movie is definitely something that you would want to watch and that would you would respond to in some way, I think. Yeah. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the cast and crew and Ed's going to start us off. So Owen Wilson, Owen Wilson's feature film debut was in Wes Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket, in 1996, which he also co-wrote. The film co-starred his younger brother, Luke Wilson. Wilson also co-wrote the Wes Anderson films Rushmore and The Royal Tenenbaums. I'm, I need to pause on this. Did you guys remember this? Because I completely forgot that he had co-wrote those films. No, I did not know that, actually. And it's not a forget you- It's not a forget for me. I, I didn't know it either. Okay, yeah. And I was like floored. I was like, whoa, I, for- I totally forgot. Anyway, sorry. Wilson acted in several more Wes Anderson films, including The Royal Tenenbaums, The Life Aquatic, The Darjeeling Limited, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and The French Dispatch. Wilson began collaborating with Ben Stiller early in his career, appearing in the Stiller-directed films The Cable Guy and Zoolander, and acted with him in several other movies, including Meet the Parents and the Night at the Museum movie series. In 2005, Wilson worked with Vince Vaughn and Midnight in Paris co-star Rachel McAdams in the huge hit Wedding Crashers. In 2006, Wilson began doing voice work as Lightning McQueen in the Cars movie series. And in 2008, Wilson appeared in Marley and Me. Wilson has (laughs) continued to have a successful and varied career since Midnight in Paris in 2013. He reteamed with Vince Vaughn for the internship in 2014. He worked with Paul Thomas Anderson on Inherent Vice. 
In 2017, he co-starred in Wonder. He's also continued to appear in sequels to his earlier work, including Cars, Night at the Museum, and Zoolander. Recently, he became a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, appearing in the Marvel series Loki as Mobius M. Mobius, opposite Midnight in Paris co-star Tom Hiddleston. According to recent reports, a second season of Loki is currently filming in London. Wilson also starred in the 2022 romantic comedy Marry Me, opposite Jennifer Lopez. He has four projects in post-production, voice work for a Cars TV series, Cars on the Road, a movie based on the Disney attraction Haunted Mansion, a Night at the Museum sequel, and a comedy called Paint. And I wasn't going to ask this before, but you said you like are an Owen Wilson fan. Like, Ed, what is like your, what are the Owen Wilson ones that you particularly enjoyed? I really like seeing him in Wes Anderson movies. I just okay. find him charming. I really liked him in Loki. There's just something about him. I like his face. It has character. I just, Marley and me is just a little too, uh, a little too pull at the heartstrings for me. I really, I think he's perfect. Like, I forgot to say this in my general opinion, but I think he was perfect in this role. Like he has, there's a certain naivety about his face, like a certain innocence at times that I think really works for discovering this time travel that's going on. Yeah, I really like him too. Any favorites for you, Luna? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just love so many. Again, the Wes Anderson films. I actually really like him. Uh, what is it called? Is it Shanghai Noon where he's uh, with Jackie Chan? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I really like that one. And uh, yeah, I also really like him in the Loki TV show. That's been yeah. fun. So I'm glad that he joined that universe. And yet more time stuff. Yeah, in that. so it's yeah. kind of a I don't, pop- time travel, I guess. Yeah, I feel like that's a very popular theme these days. Like I'm just seeing a lot of stuff pop out, you know, with that. Theme. Yeah. So we can go ahead and talk about Marion Cotillard. Uh, she is a French actress born in 1975. She's the daughter of two actors, so she began acting as a child. And it's amazing because her first IMDb credit is uh, was actually at age seven in a TV movie. Her first role as an adult and her first English language role was on the Highlander TV series, which I actually have grown to like thanks to Ishtar. <laughs> and uh, that's... I, uh, I love yeah. the Highlander TV series. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> uh, it's good fun. And um, so that was in 1993 that she made that appearance. And then her first feature film was L'Histoire d'un garçon qui voulait qu'on l'embrasse in 1994. The French movie Taxi in 1998 was really her breakthrough role in France. Uh, She even appeared in its two sequels. And then some other significant roles in early European films include War in the Highlands, Pretty Things, and Love Me If You Dare. Moving forward in 2003, Cotillard appeared in the Tim Burton movie Big Fish. Uh, Then in 2006, she starred in the romance A Good Year, opposite Russell Crowe. In 2007, she won an Oscar for portraying singer Edith Piaf in La Vie en Rose. And then after that, she, she began to get prominent roles in Hollywood films. Uh, including Nine, Inception, and of course the one we're talking about today, Midnight in Paris. Since Midnight in Paris, Cotillard has continued to appear in both Hollywood and European films, including Contagion, Rust and Bone, The Dark Knight Rises, The Immigrant, 
Two Days, One Night, uh, the 2015 Macbeth, Allied, and Assassin's Creed. Recently, she starred in Annette with Adam Driver, the French film Brother and Sister, and the Apple TV series Extrapolations. And she has several projects in the works. Asterix and Obelix, The Middle Kingdom, is in post-production. She's filming an animated movie, The Inventor, and The Brutalist and Lee are in pre-production right now. I didn't realize she had even won an Oscar, you mm-hmm. know, and, and now I've, I actually checked out La Vie en Rose from the library and I'm going to like watch it Ooh. like after we're done here. I wish I'd had time to watch it before. Yeah. I really think she's such a strong presence in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think if this role um, of Adriana had been played by anyone who was less of a strong presence, I don't think the movie would have worked as well, honestly. Yeah, I agree completely. And I was also interested to watch the 2015 version of Macbeth. Uh, for that same reason. I think she's starring opposite Michael Fassbender, and I think they're both, you know, really good actors. So I'd be very curious to see how they kind of, uh, you know, perform those roles. Also, thank you very much, Luna, for your excellent French pronunciation. I feel like my French pronunciation is okay, but yours is like a thing of beauty. Thank you. And mine would be just garbage, (laughs) just garbage. So I'm very happy it wasn't me. I try. So this this movie has a truly epic cast and other prominent actors in the film include Rachel McAdams as Inez, Kathy Bates as Gertrude Stein, Tom Hiddleston as F. Scott Fitzgerald, Alison Pill as Zelda Fitzgerald, Adrian Brody as Salvador Dali, and Leah Sadu as a contemporary Parisian woman. And there's recognizable actors in other parts too, but this is just an abbreviated list. This is a, this cast is bonkers. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. So this is the first for the show, but before we discuss Woody Allen, I wanted to put in a content warning. I realize that some people are disturbed by discussions of Woody Allen and the sexual assault allegations against him. So if you would prefer not to listen to a discussion of Allen's career and the controversy surrounding him, please check the timestamps in our show notes, and it will lead you to the main discussion of the movie. All right. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Woody Allen's career. I knew that it was like very prolific. He'd done a lot. But like when I actually looked at it, I was like floored. I was like, my God, Mm. he has 57 directing credits, 82 writing credits and 48 acting credits on IMDb. He's also worked in theater and he's written books. So it's it's quite um, it's quite a catalog. And when I think about it, I think my parents were Woody Allen fans. So like there were Woody Allen movies in my house, like as a child, and I'd seen way more of them than I actually remembered. He was born in 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, and he began sending short jokes to Broadway writers when he was 15. And some of those jokes were actually used and he was paid for them. Between 1950 and 1965, Woody Allen worked as a TV comedy writer and a stand-up comedian. And then his first film credit was in 1965 as a screenwriter on What's New Pussycat. And then he followed this up with What's Up Tiger Lily, which he directed, but it's kind of weird because it was actually a Japanese spy film, which Woody Allen just overdubbed with a completely different storyline. So like, yeah, on the one hand, he directed it. On the other hand, to me, that's not really a directing job. I don't know. What do you guys think? Have you seen this? I have not, but I was always curious about it. So it's kind of a unique idea, I feel. At the the time, time. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now it just seems like he MST3K'd a Japanese movie, basically. (laughs) 
But I mean, MST3K came after him, so I don't know. Mm. Um, after What's Up Tiger Lily in 1966, he wrote the play Don't Drink the Water, which ran for almost two years on Broadway. And then Play It Again Sam was also originally a Broadway play and starred Alan and Diane Keaton. And they went on to star in the film version directed by Herbert Ross. So as many people know, Keaton was Alan's co-star for a number of his most critically acclaimed films and appeared with him in Sleeper, Love and Death, Annie Hall, Interiors, and Manhattan. 1977's Annie Hall is generally regarded as his breakout film. It won four Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. And Alan had a huge creative output in the 80s, uh, writing, directing, and often acting in movies including Stardust Memories, The Purple Rose of Cairo, Hannah and Her Sisters, Radio Days, and Crimes and Misdemeanors. Many of these movies starred his then-girlfriend, Mia Farrow. Some of his best-known movies from the 90s included Husbands and Wives, Mighty Aphrodite, Everyone Says I Love You, and Deconstructing Harry. Then in 1998, he was randomly the lead voice actor in the animated movie Ants. Do you guys remember when that came out? I was like so confused by that. (laughs) In the 2000s, he stopped acting as often, and the critical reaction to his films was kind of mixed, I think, at best. But some of his better movies from that time period were Matchpoint, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, And in my personal opinion, whatever works, starring Larry David. After Midnight in Paris in 2011, some of Alan's other notable films are Blue Jasmine and Wonder Wheel from 2017. So in 2018, Amazon did not release the Alan film A Rainy Day in New York and canceled a deal to distribute three further Alan movies, citing Alan's inappropriate comments about the Me Too movement. So Alan praised the Me Too movement and said it was a good thing, But then he added, quote, you don't want it to lead to a witch hunt atmosphere where every guy in the office who winks at a woman is suddenly having to call a lawyer to defend himself, end quote. He also called himself the poster boy for Me Too, and it's kind of misunderstood why he did that. He said that because he said he's really worked well with women and given them a lot of great roles and like in his cast and crew and whatever. It was a really stupid thing to say in light of, you know, everything going on with him. So I can kind of, you know, understand what Amazon was doing there. Although they also made a deal with him after sexual assault allegations came out against him in the first place. So it's kind of a weird situation. But in 2020, Alan wrote and directed a movie called Rifkin's Festival, starring Wallace Shawn. And he's currently in pre-production on a French language thriller with an all French cast set to film in Paris this fall. He says it might be his last film. So in addition to his cinematic output, Alan has also written seven books, not including compilations, starting with Getting Even in 1971, and most recently he published Apropos of Nothing in 2020, and wrote the soon-to-be-released Zero Gravity. He's also played jazz clarinet in concert for years, but he doesn't consider himself to be a great musician. So yeah, like, I have seen a ton of Woody Allen films, I guess, and I would say they're not usually among my favorite films. Midnight in Paris is an exception. There's a few others I really like, but I tend not to like the ones that are his most well-regarded ones. I'm not a huge Annie Hall or Manhattan fan. In fact, I really kind of disliked Manhattan, even though I can see kind of it's technical, you know, what's good about it technically, like in terms of the filming. Have you guys liked Woody Allen's films? Are you familiar with a lot of them? I certainly was more in favor of them uh, when I was younger. Yeah, I mean, I watched... uh... Annie Hall in Manhattan when I was in college and I guess they were okay but 
definitely Midnight in Paris is my favorite of his. Yeah, I have a tendency to like the movies that Woody Allen is not appearing in as an actor. Mm. And I don't know if it's just his acting or presence that I don't respond to, or if it's like they're actually different kinds of films where he's not in them. Mm. So yeah, one of them I'm going to put in the double feature recommendations, but that has been my experience that Woody Allen is not in the movie. I tend to like it more. So the next section I'm going to add in later, it is a pre-recorded section, and it's basically going to cover why cover Woody Allen. It's going to deal with the scandal and controversy and allegations against Woody Allen. So my co-hosts have had the opportunity to look at it, but we're not doing it live right now. So that's why there's going to be kind of a scripted aspect to it. I just really wanted to say things very carefully. So now to the big question, why cover Woody Allen? First, I want to say you would need an entire podcast episode or maybe even podcast series to do justice to the complexity of the allegations against Allen. So this isn't going to be exhaustive but it seems important to say something. Before getting into any of the allegations, I want to say that whether or not Woody Allen is guilty, I don't personally believe in discarding creative work because one of the creators involved has committed a crime or caused harm, particularly if the art form is a collaborative effort, such as a film, where many people's work is involved. I understand why other people may make different choices, but that's where I stand. Now I'll talk a little bit about the allegations against Allen. Before getting to the more serious allegation of sexual assault, I want to address Allen's relationship with, and eventual marriage to, Mia Farrow's daughter, Suni Previn. For those who are unfamiliar with the situation, the basic facts are that in 1992, Allen, then 56, began a relationship with Previn, then 21. People were obviously disturbed not only by the age gap, but also by Alan dating his romantic partner's child. I also viewed this relationship as strictly creepy in the past, but after reading a 2018 interview with Sunyi Previn in Vulture, I decided that for me at least, it was time to let it go. In that interview, Previn cleared up a few common misconceptions. She made it clear that she was never Alan's child or treated as such, that they never lived in the same house, and that they rarely interacted until she was an adult. Beyond that, Previn and Allen have now been married for 30 years. Suni Previn has a master's degree, has raised two well-adjusted adopted children with Allen, and she's older than me. So I personally don't see any point in regarding her as a victim when she appears to be living a happy life. Her interview with Vulture also raised another issue, which I'll discuss more in a moment. Suni says that she was a victim of abuse by Mia Farrow. The sexual assault allegation against Allen is more complicated. I tend to default to believing victims of sexual assault, since false accusations are very rare and our justice system is so bad at actually convicting people of sexual assault. I've also never felt any particular affection for Woody Allen. I've liked some of his movies and disliked others. I found the older man, younger woman story in Manhattan creepy well before I learned anything about Allen's personal life. So like everyone else, I was really disturbed by Dylan Farrow's open letter in the New York Times in 2014, where she wrote this, quote, what's your favorite Woody Allen movie? Before you answer, you should know, when I was seven years old, Woody Allen took me by the hand and led me into a dim closet-like attic on the second floor of our house. He told me to lay on my stomach 
and play with my brother's electric train set. Then he sexually assaulted me. End quote. I was so disturbed by this accusation that I absolutely devoured every piece of writing at the time about the case, both those who were sure of Alan's guilt and those who argued against it. From this reading, I encountered facts which supported Dylan's allegations, but I also found facts which tended to support Alan's assertion of innocence. What really muddied the waters for me, though, was a blog article by Moses Farrow, Dylan's older brother, who is now a licensed therapist. In his article, Moses Farrow made a convincing case that the abuse described by Dylan couldn't have occurred in the way it was described. The details he provided are too complex to detail here. I've placed his article in the show notes so you can read and judge for yourself if you're interested. But what really planted doubt in me was his description of Mia Farrow's abusive behavior towards her Asian adopted children. In one passage, he wrote, quote, it pains me to recall instances in which I witnessed siblings, some blind or physically disabled, dragged down a flight of stairs to be thrown into a bedroom or a closet, then having the door locked from the outside. She even shut my brother Thaddeus, paraplegic from polio, in an outdoor shed overnight as a punishment for a minor transgression. End quote. Moses goes on to describe how his adopted siblings Lark, Tam, and Thaddeus all died under tragic circumstances. Thaddeus's death, a confirmed suicide, and Tam's a possible suicide. Moses's recollection of abuse comports exactly with Sunyi's descriptions of abuse from Mia. She recalls being slapped in the face, being shamed for a learning disability, having a heavy object thrown at her, and being made to act as a kind of servant while still in elementary school. Both Moses and Sunyi also recall being forced to lie by Mia at one time or another. Neither of them think that Alan committed sexual assault. Now, I do think it's possible to read Moses and Sunyi's accounts and still believe that Alan abused Dylan. Certainly, both Pharaoh and Alan could be abusive parents. However, I think that if you believe Moses and Sunyi, it creates doubt as to whether Mia Pharaoh is a reliable source of information, and it makes it plausible that Mia could have been capable of pressuring and or coaching Dylan to make an accusation. People who are certain of Alan's guilt often dismiss any doubt by saying, believe victims. But if we are to believe victims, I think we also need to take seriously Moses and Sunyi's accounts of victimization by Mia. After all my reading and reflection on the allegations against Alan, I am left in an uncomfortable state of doubt. I legitimately don't know if Alan abused Dylan. I do believe that Dylan is telling the truth as she knows it but I don't know if that truth is an accurate reflection of exactly what happened on a particular day, a slightly inaccurate version of abuse that actually happened, or a false story that she came to believe under duress. I also can't say for sure that Moses and Sunyi are telling the truth, though when two people's stories of abuse are so similar, it becomes harder for me to doubt. It could be that Moses, Sunyi, and Dylan were all victims of abuse by Pharaoh and Alan, respectively. But since I can't know what happened for sure, and since a reasonable doubt exists in my head, I don't feel comfortable condemning anyone. Finally, I want to emphasize one more time that these opinions are my own, and they do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else on the podcast. I also want to again make very clear that false allegations of sexual assault are incredibly rare. 
I believe that we should default in general to believing sexual assault accusations and victims. I just don't find it easy to dismiss Moses and Sunyi's accounts of these events either. If you would like to read any of the articles I've quoted or referred to here, please check the show notes and please let us know what you think. So I've given my statement on the matter in the recorded segment you just heard. And again, I don't have a settled opinion on the allegations against Alan, but would either of you like to give an opinion on whether you believe Alan to be guilty or how you think we ought to approach art by those who have committed crimes or caused harm? My main rule is, um, well, my main rules, I should say, are A, believe women. B, you can separate the art from the artist. I just prefer to do it in a way where I'm not financially benefiting said artist. Luna, did you want to add anything or you can you feel free if you don't have something you want to add, that's fine uh, too. Not right now. No. Okay. All right. Well, we will move on. And if you listeners have any opinions you would like to express, feel free to write us at feedback at everyromcom.com and let us know what you think. Okay. So now we're actually going to talk about the movie. Midnight in Paris's opening sequence is just gorgeous. I think I feel like it's a tourism shot for Paris. Yeah, I really liked the introduction, the opening sequence. It's uh, I like just the the different shots of of Paris and the the music. It's um, again very romantic. Yeah, uh, the music. Like when I actually looked into the music and started listening to it more, I was just like super taken with it. Mm. Um, the whole the opening scene with all the shots of Paris are set to Sidney Bechet's "Si Tu Vois Ma Mère." Mm-hmm which is a 1953 jazz composition. And yeah, I really want to dig into his work now. He was a saxophonist, clarinetist, composer, and he moved to Paris in the 50s. And I guess he's one of Woody Allen's favorite musicians because one of his adopted daughters is actually named after him, like named Bechet. Oh, wow. um, yeah, his mu- he has, he's a really well-regarded jazz musician. And I really like jazz, but I've just started getting into it over the last like five years. So Sidney Bechet is definitely one of my next stops for jazz education. Mm, Yeah. Same for me. And then in the, yeah, in the opening shots, you see a lot of typical things like the Eiffel tower, the Seine, the view from Sacre Coeur and Montmartre over the city. You see the Moulin Rouge, Notre Dame, but you also see a lot of kind of like daily scenes, like of just sidewalk cafes, just like the kind of ambiance of Paris and also, like, um, locations that I really wasn't sure what they were and just made me want to visit Paris yeah. again. Yeah. And did you notice, too, that it starts out, I don't know if it's exactly sunny, but it just starts getting rainier and rainier as it goes, like, which each shot. Yeah. yeah I, I thought that was very charming as well, just to fit with the theme of yeah, the movie. And- and there are some clear shots at the end, but there are night shots then. So it's like you see Paris in all its, like, different aspects. And you can't really help but be reminded if you are kind of a a scholar of film, you can't help but be reminded of the opening shots of New York City set to Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue in the beginning of the movie Manhattan. So it's kind of like this is to Paris what that was to New York, Mm, basically. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and then we've got our like our real like opening scene. That was just kind of a teaser almost. Our real opening scene over the credits begins with just voices as the credits play over a black screen. We have Gil, played by Owen Wilson, talking to Inez, played by Rachel McAdams. We got to bust out some every rom-com theater on this. Does anyone feel capable of portraying one of the roles? You can have. I think I can do Gil. 
Oh, you're going to do Gil. Okay. Your voice is much deeper than Gil, I will say. I think I'm closer to his range, but you can take it. <laughs> you, okay. You guys do. I, I will. I, okay. I'm happy to do Inez. I can, I can try to channel her in some way. <laughs> Just be real bitchy. This is going to be fun. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Look at this. There's no city like this in the world. There never was. You act like you've never been here before. I don't get here often enough. That's the problem. Can you picture how drop-dead gorgeous the city is in the rain? Imagine this town in the 20s. Paris in the 20s in the rain. The artists and the writers. Why does every city have to be in the rain? What's wonderful about getting wet? I mean, could you ever picture us maybe moving here after we're married? Oh, God, no. I could never live out of the United States. Applause. <laughs> Actually, yeah, Ed, you're really good. Like, if you if I met you when I was in Busan, South Korea, I would have definitely tried to get you in one of my plays. I'd be like, yeah, you're, you're playing something. Come on in. Thanks. Yeah, no, man, I felt bitchy just reading her dialogue. Rachel McAdams does a really great job in this movie, even though you don't like her character. She's oh just yeah, yeah, that, she really it, is. It, it takes it takes talent to be that dislikable. So they're having this dialogue and they're revealed to be speaking on a beautiful romantic location, a bridge at Giverny, which is Monet's home and garden made famous in his paintings. I think you've probably been there, right, Lena? Yeah, we were just there for the first time uh, this year. It's so yeah. romantic. Yeah, you probably had much better conversations on that bridge. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the trick is uh, and- marrying somebody you like. <laughs> Yes, yes. That's our baseline advice at every rom-com. Marry someone you like. (laughs) Okay, so yeah. So this conversation they're having concludes with Inez saying, you're in love with a fantasy. Then Gil says, I'm in love with you and kisses her. But like, Gil's like really not hearing Inez, in my opinion. Like everything she says is counter to what he wants. They disagree on everything. Like, it's very it's very confusing to me that these characters are together. Like I don't understand how they ever got together in the first place. What is your guys' take on I've this? I've met couples like that though. You know, I've never been a couple like that, but I've I've met them and I've seen it before and and, and who knows why people do the things they do. I mean, it could be possible that they've been together for a while. And sometimes people start to get irritated with each other. But I think it's also a good point that you bring up that it feels like there's a lot of projection where neither of them are really seeing each other and really hearing each other. Mm. So it's, it is a little bit puzzling, but I guess it works for the the plot of the movie. Yeah, like Inez just sees him as like successful screenwriter, you know, like, and he's seeing her as I don't know. Honestly, Gil seems a little shallow to me in different times in the movie. He seems like a pretty face, a hot body. And then he'll fill in the details. I don't know. Like the more I watch this movie, actually, the less I start to kind of like Gil. But somehow the movie still works for Mm -hmm. me, probably because of the historical figures. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we have um, the movie before the time travel kind of sets up the other plot. Like in actuality, the the present day plot is just as important to this movie. But I never think about it when I'm thinking about this movie. Is that the case with you, Luna? Because you've seen it more times. Like, Yeah, I mean, usually what attracts me is the 
time uh, travel part and really going back in time. Uh, so I feel like the the current time and the plot kind of recedes into the distance. Yeah, I just like, I mean, it's fine acting work and like, you know, good dialogue and everything, but I'm just not terribly compelled by like the kind of conflicts between Gil and Inez and Inez's parents. And like, Inez is a really blank character too. Like I really realized that watching it this time, like do we, we don't even know what she does, you know, outside of being engaged to Gil. Yeah. I wish there had been a little bit more character development, but I feel like, yeah, it definitely serves the purpose, you know, so that we dislike her because that's all we ever see of her is probably her saying dislikable things. Yeah. Like being kind of materialistic, wanting to buy expensive furniture and jewelry, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. And Inez's parents are um, portrayed as kind of also very materialistic Republicans. Um, At one point, they're arguing about politics over a fancy dinner. Mm -hmm. And then we get Paul and Carol. What do you guys think about Paul and Carol? I hate how much I see of myself in Paul. Really? Yeah. I, I saw that. I was like, oh, this is me at my most obnoxious. I, yeah, no, I, I, I recognize it. And I was like, oh, no, I don't like that. So to explain to the listener who may not have seen the movie, though, Paul is a guy who goes places on, goes tours around places with people and then explains all the tourist sites to them and kind of tells them the history of everything. He is described several times in the movie as pedantic. So is that the aspect that you're referring to? Yes, I mean, pedantic? Yes, I, I can be very pedantic. I'm literally the worst person to go to a Renaissance festival with. Oh, <laughs> Do you do you like the character of Paul then, or do you just like? I mean, I I like watching. I don't like him, but like it's he's an entertaining character. My my worst instincts uh, are reflected in <laughs> Paul, uh, but he's fun to watch. And then he's got a wife, Carol, who again, kind of a blank character again. Like this is a problem I've had sometimes with Woody Allen. He does sometimes write very strong women, and then other times they're just like voids so i don't know it's a very confusing thing carol just basically kind of listens to her husband and nods and tries desperately to pronounce things correctly like there's this really funny thing where she says versailles versailles like she's repeating words like she's trying to get them just right to impress paul or something so paul and carol are old friends of inez and they run into them at dinner which i feel like only really rich people run into each other at restaurants in paris like because they all go to the same restaurants and then they do end up going to Versailles and Paul is explaining Versailles to everybody. Then they're at the Rodin Museum and Paul is explaining Rodin to everyone. And I did check. So Paul disagrees with the guide. Um, Paul says Rodin was married to Camille Claudel. The guide corrects him and says that Rose was the wife and Rodin was never married to Camille. But Paul argues with the guide. So this is his big, like, not just pedantic, but kind of like mansplaining moment. And I did double check that the guide was right, and Paul was wrong. I tried to double check all his other information, too. Mm. A lot of it checked out. Some of it was a little more dubious, like uncertain, like the original old French meaning of Versailles. Yeah, I, couldn't I was track wondering that about that. <laughs> no one is more firm in their conviction than a middle-aged white man who's wrong. <laughs> I mean, a middle-aged white man who's right, too. So it's I always I always fact check because, like, they can be right also. Mm. And with Paul, it, it is indeed a mix in this movie. He's a little of each. Mm. Then we, we also find out that Gil is writing a novel. The main character works in a nostalgia shop. And we find this out because, like, Inez is kind of derisively talking about this novel to Paul and Carol. Like, in front of Gil, who's just kind of sitting there quietly mm. and kind of mocking the novel in a way. And then uh, Paul gives his uh, opinion of nostalgia. Do you want to read it, Ed? 
Yeah, I can do it. Nostalgia is denial. Denial of the painful present. The name for this denial is golden age thinking. The erroneous notion that a different time period is better than the one one's living in. It's a flaw in the romantic imagination of those people who find it difficult to cope with the present. Yes, that is Paul's pronouncement um, on nostalgia in front of Gil, who's writing a book about nostalgia. So did you share that trait with Paul or would you be rude to your to your fellow man? I'm always rude to my fellow man. Um, that, so that is one of the problems, uh, especially when I think I'm right. Again, a middle aged white man who thinks he's right. Uh, I actually I actually agree with him here. Here's the thing, right? Like. Anytime somebody's like, it was so much better back then, and it doesn't matter what context we're talking about, whether it is culture or life or music or movies, we remember the good stuff from the past and not the bad, like almost exclusively Mm -hmm. when it comes to that. Like when we have this romantic notion of, you know, Paris in the 20s or Paris in the 1890s, and it's like, well, hey, tuberculosis, guys, tuberculosis. You know, it's not as romantic Mm -hmm. a disease as you think. And we cannot go back to a time better than now as fucking awful as now is because it was so much worse in so many ways in the past. Okay, so you're talking, you're referring specifically also then to historical nostalgia, because like, there's kind of like, there's this two areas of nostalgia, there's historical nostalgia, what you're talking about, which is like, and what is Gil is in some ways talking about, which is wanting to be in a different time. There's also like, sort of personal nostalgia about times in one's own life that one would like to go to. Do you what is what's your opinion of like personal nostalgia? That's slightly different. I mean, that's that's entirely subjective and up to the individual. Maybe your 20s were better than your 40s. Maybe your fives were better than your 30s i I don't know like that's that's completely subjective i i just mean like as much as i love the music in this movie and as much as i would have loved to have been there for it everything else in the world no absolutely not so i'm kind of i i kind of don't know exactly how i feel about this issue of nostalgia i think i'm a less nostalgic person now than i used to be and that applies to both personal and historical nostalgia When I was in my 30s, I would often think of my late teens and wish that I was back in that time because I had this great group of friends. We'd always be going to the lake. It was so fun. Um, But then I think I was doing what you were talking about with the historical nostalgia. I was remembering the good things and I was forgetting how unmanageable my depression was at that time and how very much of that time was spent crying or just feeling lonely or worried or anxious about things. You erase that and you remember like the high points. And coming to that realization... And actually, and also like benefiting from getting wiser as I've gotten older and dealing better with things like depression and stuff like that. I've realized that like now is the time in my life that I do want to be in, even if sometimes I would like to have my like, I don't know, my 30 year old body back or whatever. I don't. I would know. like my, my 21 year old hairline. <laughs> but like in general, like I feel much more comfortable now in my present, like in a, in a personal nostalgia way than I ever have. And I rarely get nostalgic for times, although sometimes places that I used to live, like Korea, um, will come back to me and I'll just have this wave of like, oh, wish I could just sit in that restaurant again. Wish I could visit with those friends again. Um, historical nostalgia. I will cop to having a little bit of historical nostalgia for the pre-internet era, just because I find internet, um, the internet to be too tempting, social media to be too overwhelming sometimes to like keep myself away from it. And I remember having like a kind of a more peaceful and quieter mind in the nineties, like without that around with just books and my tapes and like calling friends, like 
I am a little bit nostalgic for the 90s in that sense. Um, personally, life was good for me at that time, although I realize that we have made advances in some areas of social justice. Although I think we've gone backwards in some areas too. Like you never would have imagined Donald Trump could ever be a president in the 1990s. So it's, it's a mixed bag, really. Mm. Luna, do you have any personal feelings about either type of nostalgia? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's basically what uh, both you and Ed were sharing, you know. Um, and I definitely, I mean, I I consider myself a citizen of the world, but, you know, I am Portuguese. And, you know, there's this concept of saudade, you know, which is very much uh, like nostalgia. And, you know, it feels like it's a little bit like even culturally ingrained in me. But I, I feel like also over time, I've become less nostalgic, uh, especially in mm -hmm. terms of historical nostalgia. I've stopped romanticizing a lot of things and just seeing things more as they are and recognizing that right now is absolutely my favorite time to be alive, you know, <laughs> just to be here. And of course, in terms of personal nostalgia, very much like you, Jen, you know, I lived in Japan and, you know, I, I often miss it. So that's yeah. something that I do experience. And sometimes it can come to me like a, a flood of feeling where I just, feel it and it's like oh i i really want to go back um but yeah 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 it's kind of hard to describe to people um who haven't lived in like a culture that's very different than their own like how incredibly different everything feels sometimes in another country yeah yeah like and in visiting it doesn't really do the same mm -hmm. thing so it's like a time that i'm never going to really get back but i can still sometimes remember that yes feeling. exactly yeah. just like you said it uh anyway that's all for nostalgia for now. We'll probably circle back to this a little bit later in the episode, though. So now we come to the actual time travel section of the movie. And it happens um, in this movie where Paul and Carol are hanging out with Gil and Inez. And Paul and Carol want to go dancing. Gil does not want to join them. Instead, he decides to walk back to the hotel on his own, a little tipsy, and he gets lost. And the song that's playing during the sequence when he's wandering, I really liked also. It's called... Bistro Fada by Stefan Rembel, who is a contemporary jazz guitarist. And I'm going to put a link to his uh, page in the show notes. I, I, I got that song kind of stuck in my head, that kind of like gypsy jazz guitar. Did that happen to you guys as well? Uh, no, I can't say that it did, but. Oh, okay. Oh, no, it definitely, it definitely did. I mean, that, that's the kind of music that literally just plays in my head. So we hear this, this music is playing while he's wandering. And then finally, he kind of gives up looking for the hotel and he's sitting on the steps of the church. It turns out this location is the church Saint-Étienne du Mont near the Pantheon. And an old fashioned car pulls up. People from the car start beckoning him to get inside. And at first he's like, well, I don't know. I don't know these people. But then he's like, well, I'm lost anyway. I'm kind of tipsy. They look fun. And he decides to get in. And I think it's sort of great that you kind of like don't question like this whole magical time travel car showing up at midnight. At least I didn't. Were you guys like, what's going on with this? I didn't question it either. And and I did enjoy that. I also think it's interesting. Like, would you do it if somebody like just showed up like that? Would you go with them? <laughs> I mean, being a woman, it's a little different, yeah. right? But like. For I me, mean, absolutely. That just sounded like an adventure. I, yeah, no question. I mean, I might like too if I were if I were Gil, I would. And like if I were like lost and like tipsy and didn't know where the hell I was going anyway. I mean, maybe they could drive me to the hotel if nothing else. So, like, 
Um, there's also one thing I was going to bring this up way later, but like nobody in this movie has a smartphone at all, despite it being like 2010 in the movie's reality. And there were a fair amount of people with smartphones at that time, especially people with money. So especially people who worked in Hollywood. I like that there's no smartphones because they would have mucked up the plot, but it does seem like a little bit um, unrealistic, I guess. Hmm. I guess the movie's kind of like a fairy tale. You know, <laughs> not only does nobody have smartphones, but it's midnight when things happen, like like in like in a fairy tale, yeah. like magic occurs. Okay, so now we arrive in the past, and Gil arrives at a party where Cole Porter is playing and singing. I'm gonna share now a little clip of that, and then we will discuss it. You look lost. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're an American. You count Alabama's America, which I do. I miss the bathtub gin. What do you do? Uh, me, I'm a writer. <gasps> What do you write? Oh, right now I'm working on a novel. Oh, yes? I'm Zelda, by the way. Right. Oh, Scott? Yeah. Scott! Yes, what is it, sweetheart? Here's, sure. a, here's a writer from... Um, oh, a writer. California. Scott Fitzgerald. And who are you, old sport? Gil... The... You have the same names as... As what? You know, Scott Fitzgerald and... Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, the Fitzgeralds. Isn't she beautiful? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's... It's a, a coincidence. It's like a... You have a glazed look in your eye. Stunned, stupefied, anesthetized, lobotomized. No, no, I, 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 I keep looking at the man playing piano and I, believe it or not, recognize his face from some old sheet music. I know, I could be one of the great writers of musical lyrics. Not that I can write melodies, and I try. And then I hear the songs he writes, and I realize I'll never write a great lyric, and my talent really lies in drinking. Yeah, but he, he didn't write the music, did he? That's not possible. <laughs> yeah, so this is um, Gil's slow realization that he is in the past, and obviously he's just met Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, and we hear that Cole Porter playing in the background. Yeah, any, any comments anyone has about this scene? The interesting thing for me about uh, this portrayal of Cole Porter is that the person providing the singing voice is significantly better at singing than Cole Porter was. Cole Porter was not, I mean, he was one of the greatest songwriters of all time, an okay piano player, and not a great voice, if you've ever heard any of the recordings of him performing his old songs. Uh, mm. So, but I mean, I guess that would probably throw things off for a movie, so I understand the mm. desire to have him sound better. And the timeline is also a little possibly um, off. Um, unless, like, I don't know, maybe, Ed, you know, like, was he, like, T tinkering with some of the songs that he would later release at this time to your knowledge or like because like the songs he's singing in this scene um let's do it let's fall in love is dated to 1928 you've got that thing is dated to 1929 and a lot of other things in this movie appear to happen a bit earlier do you think it's credible that he was actually singing some of these songs then before he released them yeah, to some extent yes uh i mean he was a workhorse when it came to to writing songs and and as time went on uh you know he would shorten that gap between writing a song and having it be in a production at the same time though i think for 95 percent of of anybody watching this movie it's not gonna matter to them it's just an old song yeah um i yeah. mean if they wanted to go with real historical accuracy 
they could not have used let's do it let's fall in love because the original lyrics to it were really kind of fucking racist in parts oh i did not oh, know yeah. that let's just say that there are li- there are lines in it that i actually could not read on this podcast otherwise this podcast sure. would get canceled sure. and then also ed like I think you know a little bit more than we do. Well, maybe I can't speak for Luna, but you know a little bit more than I do about um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald. What do you think of their portrayal in this film? Their portrayal seems very accurate. There's some stuff that like, I mean, again, they're not trying to really portray them in this. They are there as flavor and as part of the time. There was a lot more in terms of, you know, Scott's relationship to Hemingway, Scott's relationship to Zelda, Scott's relationship to other people of the time that uh, it just wouldn't have fit in this movie. So just as ancillary characters, I mean, it gets them across. It touches a little bit on how he'd already kind of had success at the time he was there. I can't remember which book he would have already published by at then. that point. Uh, the side of paradise was out. Uh, and okay. if we're assuming that this is like 1926, like he's had some success with short stories and Great Gatsby would be next on the docket. And then Zelda was a writer too, which I actually was not aware of. Like, have you read her works? I've read some of the stories and I have read Save Me the Waltz. And what's Save Me the Waltz? Because I've, yeah, I had not heard of it. So that was her only published novel. And I've not read the original version of it, but there was an issue uh, between her and Scott where, I mean, two people who are writers having things going on in their own life you would think that the material would be available to both parties, but Scott kind of threw a hissy fit uh, because uh, mm. a lot of the stuff that was originally in Save Me the Waltz played into uh, what would be Tender as the Night. And so Zelda mm. actually changed a lot of it because of that. Oof. <laughs> That's not pleasant. I just realized something. Uh, Gatsby would have been out by then, actually. Oh, Gatsby yeah. would have been out so by then. If, if we're saying okay. 1926, yeah, Gatsby's 1925. So yeah, I mean, that would have been out if that's the year we think it is. So Zelda also dealt with like mental health issues, which are alluded to sort of later in this movie. Like, it seems kind of like a controversial topic, though, because some people think that like, yes, she just had a, a mental illness and other people suggest that maybe her marriage to F. Scott Fitzgerald was very bad for her and that caused her distress. Have you read much on this or... It's hard to diagnose somebody from the past with things that we know in the present. Like at the time, uh, she was diagnosed as a schizophrenic. And I mean, who's to say that that was an accurate diagnosis or not? Others have claimed that she was probably bipolar to some extent. Uh, She had a lot going on, but it's more of a trend than just her time with Scott. So, I I mean, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm, I'm inclined to believe that there was definitely some health problems there and of course he was an unrepented alcoholic up until the year before his death and he died pretty young it seems like yes too. i mean they both so, did uh he yeah. he was 44 she was 48 wow Oof. yeah some of the artists that we're going to talk about like fared a little better but yeah they had kind of short lives although i guess at least um in f scott fitzgerald's case he produced a lot of work that people still enjoy so a brief introduction into paris in the 20s in america the 20s were called the Roaring 20s, like sort of famous for like partying and like revolutions in fashion and behavior. In France, the same time period was called Les Années Folles, the crazy years. So people who study the 20s kind of attribute the like pleasure-seeking behavior of the time of the 1920s as largely a reaction to going through the horrors of World War I and trench warfare and people being gassed. 
And then after that, the Spanish flu epidemic, like following right on the heels of World War I. I can't even imagine, to be honest. It seems like World War I touched almost everybody, especially in Europe. Anyway, in reaction to that kind of horror, everyone started partying and trying to live life and be in the moment. And Paris in the 20s ended up becoming not only a place to seek pleasure because um, it didn't have prohibition like the U.S. had prohibition of alcohol, but it also became an artistic hub and it began attracting expats for other reasons as well. So some of the U.S. and British people who came to Paris in the 20s had visited it during World War I. Um, as I mentioned, prohibition was a reason to go to France. The value of the franc was very low compared to the American dollar, so you could live there very cheaply, kind of like some people would go to like Thailand or something today. And Paris gave artists, importantly, the freedom to publish and show works, which might have been deemed obscene or just like too avant-garde in the U.S. or Great Britain. And something that really isn't touched on at all in this film, unless you count seeing Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas for a minute, um, Paris was a place with greater sexual freedom. So there's like a notable number of the greatest artists, writers, and musicians in Paris in the 20s who were gay or lesbian and often lived quite openly with their partners because homosexuality had not been banned in France since the revolution, like in contrast to a lot of their home countries. Um, but despite this kind of creative, liberated environment and, and this rich artistic output, Gertrude Stein dubbed the young men of the 1920s a lost generation. And Hemingway reports what she said to him in A Movable Feast. She said, that's what you all are, all of you, young people who served in the war. You are a lost generation. You have no respect for anything. You drink yourselves to death. And weirdly, though, like the original, original source for this term, the lost generation, was like some owner of like a garage that was complaining about one of the mechanics at his garage to Gertrude Stein. So really, we, we owe this like random garage owner with, with this appellation. And Midnight in Paris obviously couldn't focus on all the creators in Paris at the time. And so I think it's important to note that there were a great many women other than Gertrude Stein who were like very essential to the creative environment at the time, including Sylvia Beach, the, the owner of Shakespeare and Company, and her lover, Adrienne Monnier, who operated um, sort of the French equivalent of Shakespeare and Company. They were like not only bookstores and lending libraries, but those two women also provided gathering places for writers and often gave financial support. And Sylvia Beach was like the first publisher of Ulysses by James Joyce. So these were like vital figures. If you want to know more about them and like other women who were very influential in Paris in the 20s, I really recommend the 1997 documentary Paris Was a Woman, written by Andrea Weiss and directed by Greta Schiller. I found it at my library. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. So I just want to ask you guys, is Paris in the 20s an important time for you? Like is it a time you look back on or you've read or familiar with a lot of its artists and writers? I wouldn't say a lot. No. Mostly I've gotten to know a little bit of the time period just through Anais Nin. And, you know, I've read a lot of her diaries dating back to the late 20s. And her her descriptions, you know, because she's a diarist, her descriptions are so yeah. vivid. And she talks about so many of the characters that she encounters that it just, it almost feels like you're there. It gives you that sense of familiarity with it, I feel. Yeah, I was also a big Anais Nin reader, yeah, especially in my late teens and early 20s. So I agree with you there. And like, I, I think I was more like, I more associate her with the 30s, but you're right. She was living there starting in the mid-20s. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, keeping her diary her whole life. Yeah. 
And Ed, you kind of mentioned that you respond to that era. Are there favorite artists of yours from that era? I mean, in terms of who's in this movie, I mean, yes, uh, Hemingway, Fitzgerald's, Cole Porter. Uh, I know we're going to talk about A Movable Feast as as like a reference for all of this, but if you would like a less Hemingway-y account of that time period, uh, a woefully out-of-print book by Canadian author Morley Callahan, That Summer in Paris, is a more sober counterpoint to Hemingway's bravado. And, and like, yeah, a movable feast is often regarded as possibly not entirely reliable in certain senses. My my personal, I tend to respond a lot to the visual artists of the 20s. So I like that Man Ray, the photographer, was portrayed in this movie. I'm also a big fan of the painter Fernand Leger. Now we're going to talk about one of Ed's favorites who provides like several of the songs that are in this soundtrack. We don't really get to see Cole Porter as a personality in this movie, though, interestingly. No, and I think that is okay, especially considering Gill's emphasis more or less on authors than on musicians or uh, visual artists. But, uh, you know, Cole Porter, Eve Heck played him uh, in the acting role, and I believe... Connell Fox is the singing voice. And again, we already covered that. That didn't sound like Cole. Um, <laughs> he, was bo- he was born in, in 1891, died in 1964 after a long suffering period after a horse accident that involved the amputation of his legs. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Prolific songwriter uh, for both uh, Broadway and film. Honestly, if you ask me my three favorite songwriters of all time, it's Cole Porter. Rock him from Eric B and Rock him and Frank Turner. So I'm kind of all over the place with that. But uh, <laughs> uh, th- this film features three of his songs. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. You've got that thing. And you do something to me, which even if you don't know a lot of music from that time, you certainly know the line. Do do that. Voodoo that you do so well. Yeah. And uh, the film doesn't touch on his sexuality uh, and Neither does his first biopic where Cary Grant plays him night and day. But uh, Cole Porter was openly and out homosexual, especially in Paris at the time. He did marry socialite Linda Lee, but that was more of a convenience marriage, although they clearly did have some affection for each other. And that's kind of a crucial thing to his character in general. But with his brief appearance in this movie, uh, I can see why it wouldn't have been included because we never even speak to the man. Yeah, you're right, though, like. Gil is more focused on writers, so it does make sense to focus the movie that way. But I would have loved to see a different movie about Cole Porter with this guy. And I might recommend one at the end of this episode. (laughs) Very good. And I see you've also included some things in the show notes that people can look up. Yes, absolutely. And I really do recommend if you like uh, Tin Pan Alley that that The Poets of Tin Pan Alley by Philip Furia is a fantastic book. And I reread it all the time because I just love it. Have we talked about Cole Porter enough for your satisfaction, Ed? Or is there There's literally never add? going to be a point where we have talked about him enough to my satisfaction, so this is the time to move on. <laughs> okay. So there's kind of a throwaway line almost in the movie where Zelda and Gil and F. Scott Fitzgerald are all talking, and Zelda goes, let's go to Bricktops. And I do not have as much time as I would like to devote to talking about um, Ada Bricktop Smith, who was the owner of what the nightclub that they're referring to as Bricktops, I will leave a couple of articles about her in the show notes, but Bricktops in brief was 
a nightclub that was owned by Ada Bricktop Smith, an African-American woman who arrived in Paris in 1924 as a performer and eventually ran several nightclubs in Montmartre. She lived a fascinating life. She attracted all kinds of talented musicians to her nightclub. And Cole Porter was actually a big friend and supporter of her. I'm not sure if she's portrayed in the movie. I'd have to go back and try to check and see if there's somebody who looks like her. But we do get a brief glimpse of someone who is supposed to be Josephine Baker, of course, an even more famous to most people performer who was in Paris at the time. We hear the song La Conga Blicotti, which apparently is from 1936. So that's, you know, not realistic, but it might just be because that was the only song they could get with Josephine Baker's voice on it. And Baker arrived in Paris in 1925 and just became an immediate runaway success. A lot of her performances were done at the Folies Bergère, but she also appeared in films. And yeah, also a hugely important figure in Parisian history. I really wish we had more time to talk about her. Like it's opened up a whole new area of exploration for me that I want to get to after this. So now we get to like somebody who's a big a figure of importance for Gill. Um, the Fitzgeralds take Gill to a restaurant where they introduce him to Hemingway. The guy who portrays him in this movie, Corey Stoll, like, I don't know. I don't know what Hemingway was really like, but now I think Hemingway was like this guy. It felt real, real Hemingway-esque. Yeah, I was like tempted actually to like cut and paste some of like the dialogue from this movie and run it through and see if it matched any of his books. Because I think they got he got the writing style kind of just right. Like this, the very simple minimalistic sentences and like declarative statements. Like you've probably read more Hemingway than I have. Did it, did it feel no, yeah, it, like that it, to it you? It felt like that. Plus like when you read stuff that Hemingway wrote that was not fiction, it very much seems like him. So yeah, Gil meets Hemingway, his kind of jaw drops and he's like, Hemingway. And Hemingway was like, you like my book? And Gil's like, I like all your books. And then Hemingway says this to Gil. And do you mind reading this for us, Ed? Like, I'm sorry, I'm making you do a lot of it's work fine. on this. Yes, it was a good book because it was an honest book. And that's what war does to men. There's nothing fine and noble about dying in the mud, unless you die gracefully. And then it's not only noble, but brave. So, yeah, we get this um, sort of classic Hemingway-esque um, response to, to Gil liking his book. So then um, Hemingway and Gill discuss Gill's book, and he's feeling really uncertain about the topic of his book. And Hemingway says, No subject is terrible if the story is true and if the prose is clean and honest, and it affirms courage and grace under pressure. And um, Gill wants Hemingway to read his book, but Hemingway says that he should not give his book to another writer because if he likes it, he'll hate it. And if he doesn't like it, he'll also hate it because other writers are competition. So as like somebody who writes, do you feel that way? If you read another writer's work and it's good, do you hate it? Or do you only hate it if it's bad? I usually only hate it if it's bad, but I, I get the sentiment that I would be like, my highest compliment is I wish I wrote this, you know? Yeah. But I don't get, I don't get salty about it. I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I don't hate other people's writing if it's good. Although I think like there is something to be said for having somebody who's like, um, more like in a critic position or an editor position to read your work. But it's interesting that um, Hemingway says that Gill should give his book to Gertrude Stein, even though she's also a writer. Like, I don't know if people really know that as much about Gertrude Stein, that she did her own writing as well. Yeah. It's certainly not what she's most known yeah, for. Yeah, and I think I think more more or less, I mean, yes, she wrote, but she was a public intellectual, and I think that was kind of the thought. So the restaurant where um, Gill meets Hemingway is called Le Polydor. It opened in 1845, and it's still open today. So it's kind of interesting that this is the location that um, 
Woody Allen chose to have Gil walk out of, and then he walks back to try to talk to Hemingway again, and the restaurant's disappeared. Because that location actually would still be there in 2010. And Luna, you said that you'd like stayed near there when you were last in Paris or something like yes, that? Yes, absolutely. I actually stayed right next door at the Hotel Stella. And that I just want to say that is the most haunted place I've ever been in, in my entire life. <laughs> And the poly, uh, the Polydor uh, looked very, very appealing. But these days, it it looked so classy and fancy that uh, we decided not to go there. <laughs> not the kind of place that Hemingway would just be hanging out, pounding yeah, the table. Yeah, you know, I don't think so. I think it'd be a bit too expensive. <laughs> and just like some brief information about Ernest Hemingway, his early work was as a journalist, and that like kind of inspired some of his more minimalist um, writing style with like simple phrases. Like I completely relate to that because in journalism, you have to keep it tight. Mm. He did serve in World War I, but as a Red Cross ambulance driver. And he was wounded, but sometimes I guess he was known to exaggerate the amount that he was wounded. He moved to Paris in 1921 as a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star and met Gertrude Stein in 1922. And while she advised him on his writing, he ran errands and typed up manuscripts for her. So they had kind of a symbiotic relationship. Um, he met the Fitzgeralds in 1925. And as we mentioned, the relationship among them was a bit complicated. Like Hemingway seems to really have admired Fitzgerald's talent, but found some of his personal traits a bit weak. And Hemingway's at that time, like Ed, you think the book he's talking about was the sun also rises possibly in this movie? Yeah, more Not just because of the, the, the time frame, but I mean, he spends a lot of the time in the movie palling around with a matador so i feel like that has to be a nod to it yeah and then some other books that you might know hemingway for include for whom the bell tolls the old man in the sea and many others and hemingway wrote a book about his time in paris that we've mentioned already a movable feast but it wasn't published until after his death published in 1964 and hemingway died by suicide in 1961 i guess he had suffered from depression and alcoholism for much of his life and other stuff referenced in the movie regarding Hemingway is his like penchant for women, for boxing, for hunting and watching bullfights. I think all this stuff, all this like macho stuff is kind of why I haven't read that much Hemingway because he always struck me as just like sort of aggressively masculine in a way that I couldn't relate to. But I'm kind of tempted, like I do like his pro style, so I'm kind of tempted to go back and read some more. I'd say I, I can relate to what you said, Jen. And um, I mean, I read The Old Man in the Sea uh, because I had to in mm. school. And, you know, that was that was nice. But um, I do like his style, though. I like that he's and even the way that he's portrayed in the film, you know, just being very uh, forthright and um, very honest. I It's something yeah. it's a quality that's appealed more to me over time. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with that so as well. So I, I yeah. could see myself also maybe going back and reading another one of his books someday. No spoilers here, but the last two or three pages of A Farewell to Arms is some of my favorite prose of all time. Okay, good ah. to know. Maybe that's worth a reread. I was definitely forced to read that in early high school, and I have no recollection of it whatsoever. So, so we have a present-day interval, which is really brief. Um, Gil tries to tell Inez he's traveled in time. She um, predictably does not believe him. And then Gil tries and fails to take Inez to the past. I really think if Inez had been there at midnight, it would have failed. I don't think a car would have come to pick them up. There's not there's not opinions. enough magic and nostalgia in her. <laughs> That's right. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So my favorite like 
My favorite Hemingway like segment from this movie though is this little bit when Gil successfully travels back to the past the second time Hemingway greets him and this is what part of Hemingway's little speech to him in the car. You'll never write well if you fear dying. Do you? Yeah, I do. I'd say it's probably might be my greatest fear actually. Well, it's something all men before you have done, all men will do. I know, I know. Have you ever made love to a truly great woman? Actually, my fiance is pretty sexy. And when you make love to her, you feel true and beautiful passion, and you, for at least that moment, lose your fear of death. No, that, that doesn't happen. I believe that love that is true and real creates a respite from death. All cowardice comes from not loving or not loving well, which is the same thing. And when the man who is brave and true looks death squarely in the face, like some rhino hunters I know, or Belmonte, who's truly brave, it is because they love with sufficient passion to push death out of their minds until it returns as it does to all men. And then you must make really good love again. Think about it. Oh man, that one kills me. Especially when he's like, think about it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, excerpt, I excerpted that not just because I like the style of it and like the way he's talking, kind of like he's writing a novel to Gil in that moment, but I actually like agree with his sentiment. I think there's really something to what he's saying. When you make love to someone you have like true and great passion for and they're a great person, you do, your fear of death goes away at that time. Like I relate to that. And I love how like he's, he doesn't feel that way about Inez. And maybe that's like an early realization that like, hey, something's not right here. Did you guys respond to this in any way or like, is it just It's me? very foreshadowing. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Do you feel this though? Like if you, it, like it made me think about my life and I'm like, yeah, like there have been times when like that is what sex has done for me. Like with somebody who I just like was very passionate about it, just like took away fear entirely. It's just that escape into something like bigger. Yeah. In, am I, no, the, am no. I alone in this? You're like, not alone in that. I can, I have experienced that myself, so. It resonated for me as well, is what I'll say. So in this next visit to the past, Gil meets Gertrude Stein. He encounters her while she's in the middle of evaluating a Picasso painting of a rather abstract naked woman figure on a beach. Um, I tracked the painting down. It is The Bather from 1928, which is part of the collection of Le Musée Picasso in Paris, although I think it's being held in another museum right now. Um, so if you want to look it up, though, The Bather 1928. And Stein is critiquing the painting, saying it is more like a still life and its subject has been reduced to an object of pleasure. And I think, like, I kind of agree with her opinion on the painting, actually. Hmm. Yeah, and then the, paint, the portrait is supposed to be of Adriana, played by uh, Marianne Cotillard. And Gertrude Stein solicits Gill's opinion on whether the portrait resembles Adriana. And that's when he first sees her. Um, in the same scene, we have Gertrude Stein reading from Gill's book. I'll go ahead and read that one. Out of the past was the name of the store, and its products consisted of memories. What was prosaic and even vulgar to one generation had been transmuted by the mere passing of years to a status at once magical and also camp. And so she reads this out. Obviously, this Gill's book is basically expressing the theme of the movie. So, Well, I'd just say I actually liked it, you know, just to hear an excerpt from Gill's book. Yeah, I think it's really like a good decision to mine that for more thematic elements, for sure. Mm. And Gertrude Stein is played by Kathy Bates in this movie. And um, Luna, do you want to tell us a little bit more about her? Yeah, definitely. So Gertrude Stein was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1874. Um, she 
moved to Paris with her brother Leo in 1903. And since moving there, she really became established as the central figure in the Parisian art and literary scene, especially when it comes to the avant-garde. She had a salon at uh, 27 Rue de Fleurus, which was uh, often frequented by uh, Picasso, Matisse, Hemingway, very much as we see in the, in the movie. She was an early key patron of Picasso, according to the documentary Paris Was a Woman. And the Stein family actually controlled the Picasso output from 1906 to 1910 because they were the only ones buying his work at the time. So not only Stein, but I know her brother for sure was involved in that as well. Between 1905 and 1906, Picasso painted his famous portrait of Stein that we see reproduced in the movie. I'd also just like to point out that she lived with her partner, Alice B. Toklas, and we just catch a very, very small glimpse of her in the movie. So, and I'm, we're not really going to talk about Picasso here. Like, he's probably the most famous person portrayed in the movie. So, well, arguably. So we're going to move on um, to Gil meeting Adriana. And I just want to say I love Adriana as portrayed by Marianne mm-hmm. Cotillard. But her main attraction to Gil seems to be that on the one hand, she's beautiful. And the other hand, she likes her, his book. Like, the first thing she says to him is basically hearing her the opening of his book and saying, I love it. I'm already hooked. She isn't given a ton of her own character traits. She's given the trait that she's come to Paris to study fashion. It's really up to Marianne Cotillard, I think, to make her a whole person in this movie. And I think she actually succeeds. Oh, sorry. Her other big personality trait is that she, she says the past has always had a great charisma for me. She also has nostalgia. She wants to live in the past, just like Gil. So she has these things in common with Gil, but she just... I don't know if she's a fully rounded character as much as I w- would usually like. Mm. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree with you. I'd say I wish we had more information about her, but I, yeah. I do also agree, you know, just because it's Marion Cotillard, you know, if it were anybody else, I don't know how well, how well it would have worked, but um, it just, it's good enough that it works for me, you know? And in some yeah. respects, I feel like that's a limit of a movie that has that many characters that we actually don't get to spend that much time with. The only person who does feel fully fleshed out to me is Gil hmm. in the entire movie. Hmm. Everyone else is just a picture of something and kind of faded. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess you could be right. Like I was going to say that I felt like Hemingway was pretty fleshed out, but it might just be because of our knowledge of Hemingway that we bring to the movie that he feels more fleshed out. Whereas Adriana is like playing Picasso's mistress, but like she wasn't a real mistress of Picasso. She's just sort of like a, uh, what do you want? What do you call that? A composite. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Thank you. She's like a composite of like all of Picasso's mistresses, which he apparently had many. So yeah. Mm. So yeah, I think you may be right. Gil maybe is the only fully developed character in the movie. Mm. So we have an interlude in the present. They go to the flea market in San Juan um, Gil meets a young woman, Leah Sadu, who's selling Cole Porter records. And they talk briefly about the Cole Porter records. Um, then Inez says that they have to get to the lingerie to see Monet's water lilies. Lee pointed out to me here that um, Gil is in the process of meeting a real Parisian and having a discussion with someone. And then 
Inez pulls her away to, to see culture, to see the real Paris, the real culture, right? And they cut to this shot of lingerie, which is like very, the walls are very sterile and white. Of course, you have Monet's beautiful pictures there and it's worth seeing. But Lee pointed out to me that it's a very different philosophy of like how you experience a culture, like talking to real people on the street or going to this museum. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm 100% with Lee on that. I mean, I like to go to museums. Oh, don't yeah, get me wrong. Absolutely, but I mean, if you want a real uh, immersive experience, you don't look at you don't go and look at something that's 150 years old. You talk to the people there now. I do a bit of both, but I thought like this really showed a contrast. But again, between Inez and Gil, and Inez just doesn't really want to connect with the culture at all. She's just not invested in it. Yeah, yeah. and I find that there's a lot of like small contrasting things like that spread throughout the movie, like even. Like at the beginning, just to refer back, you know, how it seems like Gil is very happy at Giverny. And, but, you know, Inez likes Versailles better. They feel very different to me as well. So again, different approaches. Then Gil is with Paul, Carol, and Inez. They encounter the Picasso portrait that he had just seen in the past and Paul is beginning to explain it, but then Gil interrupts Paul to explain the actual origins of the portrait that we have just learned in the movie, which was kind of a satisfying scene. And finally, Inez's father decides to have a detective follow Gil every night to find out where he is going, which will lead to a very funny scene later in the movie. So back in the 1920s, we cut to a scene where Gil is dancing the Charleston, apparently with Juna Barnes, the author. Um, it's in an indoor area filled with all these cool old Mario grounds of different types, like really old fashioned, like turn of the century stuff. Um, I found out and I was really excited about this because I'm totally visiting it when I go to Paris again. The cool location for this scene is Le Pavillon de Bercy, Musée des Arts Foraines, so Museum of Fairground Arts. And you can actually, if you go to this museum, they let you ride on those rides, Whoa. like those old fashioned rides that they're on in the movie. Isesn't that cool? We need to go there. <laughs> Yeah, we. Oh, good. I like this. I'm going to visit you in Ishtar. We're going to visit there. That's awesome. Let's do it. Yeah, they have objects from fairgrounds from the 1850s to the 1950s, and I'm like obsessed with it, and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. It looks so awesome. Anyway, they're at this party. They're dancing and riding on the fairground stuff. Hemingway comes up, tries to pick Adriana up, tries to like flirt with her, but Gil manages to sweep her away for a walk. And now they're walking at night on the streets of Paris. And Gil gives a big speech. And actually, Luna, I'm going to break with character and not make Ed read the guy's part. And I'm going to give it to you if you will accept it. Okay. So he says, I sometimes think, how's anyone ever going to come up with a book or a painting or a symphony or a sculpture that can compete with a great city? You can't. Because you look around and every street, every boulevard is its own special art form. And when you think that in the cold, violent, meaningless universe that Paris exists, these lights, I mean, come on, there's nothing happening on Jupiter or Neptune. But from way out in space, you can see these lights, the cafes, people drinking and singing. For all we know, Paris is the hottest spot in the universe. Hmm. To which Adriana says, vous êtes un poète. So Woody Allen's getting the hot female character to validate his writing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he is. (laughs) But it is a beautiful sentiment, though. And I kind of like, when I hear somebody talk like that about a city, it does make me think about it in a new way. There Mm -hmm. are certain cities, I think, that are art forms in and of themselves. And I would put Paris as one of them. Do either of you agree? Are there other cities you would put in that 
classification. Mm, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Um, I still fundamentally believe that New York City is the center of the universe. Do you find it to be an art form in and of itself, like the way it's designed and so forth? Uh, certainly in parts, yes. Luna, do you have any other competition for Paris? You know what? What cities you consider it's great? It's actually really funny because there's a lot of great cities that I've been to. And when I think mm -hmm. about actually their layout or just, you know, kind of them being like an art form in themselves. Wow, actually, so far Paris seems like the the highest one on my list, which is interesting. Yeah, my only competition for it would be Kyoto, mm -hmm. Japan. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't really, but I don't really know the whole overview of Kyoto where I've seen the map of Paris before and I see how it's all laid mm -hmm. out. And it, there is kind of this perfection to it with that like ring around the city that used to be the city walls. Yeah. And, and that's now the road and everything and just the cobblestone streets and everything. But there are parts of Kyoto also that are just like amazing mm -hmm. and you feel kind of transported to the past by them and everything is just beautifully taken care of as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. So, their walk is going well until they see Zelda Fitzgerald trying to throw herself into the sun and Gil pulls out a Valium and gives it to her. And while he's doing that, he ends up revealing that he is engaged um, in Adriana's hearing. And Adriana, now that she knows this information, is no longer interested in hanging out with Gil. So she kind of leaves him at this cafe where he is then poked in the arm by a cane belonging to Salvador Dali. And this is like my favorite part in the whole movie. I can watch the scene where he meets Dali and the surrealist. I can watch it on a loop and just keep watching it. Was it anyone else's favorite? It's very amusing. It's the funniest part of the movie. That's for sure. And uh, Adrian Brody, if you look at pictures of young Salvador Dali, they look almost identical. Mm -hmm. It's it's eerie. And he really like he was Adrian Brody was encouraged to really play this big. And he really went for <laughs> it. Uh, there's this line where Dali is talking to Gil, um, kind of a non sequitur, says that he kind of looks like a rhinoceros. He says to Gil, I paint rhinoceros. I paint you. Your sad eyes and big lips melting over the hot sand. With one tear. Yes. And in your tear, another face. The Christ face. Yes. And rhinoceros. And so Kill's just like hanging around with him with this. Apparently, like Salvador Dali found the rhinoceros horn to be like the best shape in nature or something. He said they were, quote, the only ones in the animal kingdom constructed in accordance with a perfect logarithmic spiral, which even when I looked up what a perfect logarithmic spiral was, it went totally over my head. Does anyone else understand that? Absolutely not. <laughs> Ed, do you know what a perfect logarithmic spiral is? Does it make any sense to you? Is it like a golden ratio thing? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't Maybe. know. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think so, but yeah, it went over my head. Anyway, Dali was legitimately obsessed with rhinoceroses. He painted many paintings with them and made many sculptures with them. That's why this is in the movie. Okay. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, I am, though, going to play the clip where the other surrealists come in, because this is like literally the funniest thing that happens in this movie. Senor Buñuel. 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 Mr. Manley. Man, right. Oh, my gosh. Hello. This is Bender. Bender. This is Bender. Yes. And I am Dali. Dali. Yes. You have to remember. Bender is in a perplexing uh, situation. He, he, it, it sounds so crazy to say you guys are going to think I'm drunk, but I have to tell someone I'm from a 
different time, another era, the future. Okay, I come from the 2000th millennium to here. I get in a car and I slide through time. Exactly correct. You inhabit two worlds. So far, I see nothing strange. Well, yeah, you're surrealist, but I'm a normal guy. See, in one life, I'm engaged to marry a woman I love. At least I think I love her. Christ, I better love her. I'm marrying her. The rhinoceros makes love by mounting the female. But is there a difference in the beauty between two rhinoceroses? There is another woman? Adriana, yes, and I'm um, you know, very drawn to her. I find her you know, extremely alluring. You know, the, you know, the problem is that other men, you know, great artists, geniuses, are also find her alluring, and she finds you know, them, so there's that. But a man in love with a woman from a different era. I see a photograph. I see a film. I see an insurmountable problem. I see that it also goes. So, what do you guys think about that clip? It's one of my favorites. Mm, it's one of my favorites, too. It's just so funny. Adrian Brody is just perfect in this scene. He's just perfect. Yeah, and it's it's funny because... It's perfect, but then when I've like read things that are written by Dali or I've seen him in interviews, he seems like more normal. You know, like obviously mm. this is kind of an exaggeration of Dali, but this is kind of like what you would dream Dali to be like, I think, you know? Like that the exuberance and the strangeness and yeah. Yeah. It, it's scene stealing though. It's 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 one of those things that really makes the comedy part of the rom com come through. Yeah. Yeah, this mm -hmm. I, I think almost think without this scene, I would like the movie like ten to twenty percent less. Actually, <laughs> mm. I don't know. And um, yeah, I think also though I just like it's one of those scenes where it's like sort of the movie's name dropping. Like the movie's name dropped before with Fitzgerald and like the Hemingways, but those are like kind of way more culturally well known figures. In this movie, I remember like I didn't really know who Louis Bunuel was, I've, but I'd heard the name and I felt smart because I knew the name and I knew who Man Ray <laughs> was and I I knew who Dali was. And so I think it's a movie that is kind of better appreciated if you have a certain level of education because then you can feel like you're like in the know or something like that. And it, and part of the pleasure is getting the references. And it makes mm -hmm. me wonder like if you didn't get the references, what would this movie experience be like? That's a really good question. Now I wonder that too. So for me, I wonder if it would spark some interest in who these characters were um, as historical figures and if their portrayal in the movie um, was uh, would match what they were like in person. And I have the opposite reaction. I, I get a lot of the references in this, and I still think it's pretentious as all hell. <laughs> Is that is that a is that a bad thing or a good or neutral thing to you? It's that's a neutral thing. Okay, uh, it's very much trying hard to be referential. I don't know how else to explain it. It's aren't we clever? It's very aren't we clever? Yeah, yeah. There's mm -hmm. definitely there's an aren't we clever thing I'm going to bring up with Boonwell. Yeah, in a few minutes here too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just really enjoy this clip and. I felt like Adrian Brody's performance was really exceptional. So I 
feel like you, Jen. I, I'm really glad that they included this in the movie. I'd be tempted to say I'd want to see a whole, you know, Dolly movie with Adrian Brody, but like, not if it was done in this tone. This is like the tone of this <laughs> is just good for like one scene. But he does look a lot like Dolly. Maybe he could do a more serious biopic of Dolly at some point, like in his older years or something. Mm, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Okay, so a little bit about Dolly. Um, basically, he moved to Paris in 1926, which is part of how we can sort of date when this film is supposed to be taking place. He was only 22 at the time, and he was part of the Surrealist movement. And he collaborated with Louis Bunuel, who we also see in this scene, on the famous movie Un Chien Andalou. Have you guys seen this movie at all or clips from it? No. It's kind of known for this like really disturbing like image of a razor cutting into an eye. It's not actually a razor cutting into a human eye, but they use a trick to make it look like it is. So you may have seen just a clip of that. I want to say it was in a Nine Inch Nails video, but I might be wrong. It's the kind of ah. thing that you would see a clip of in a Nine Inch Nails video, basically. Well, then I definitely will not be watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's just a really strange, surrealist, black and white film. Um, but that's something Dali and Bunuel are famous for collaborating on. And they also collaborated on the movie L'Age d'Or. Dali mm. co-wrote the script and Bunuel completed it. In terms of Dali, I'm sure we're not going to go into his whole artistic career, but I'm sure people have seen many of his paintings, such as The Persistence of Memory. His stuff is everywhere in our culture. And if you want to get a closer look at it, there's several Dali museums in the world. I have personally visited the one in Montmartre in Paris, and mm. it was wonderful. Wow, right? that sounds great. All right, well, we've got some more visual artists. Um, Luna's going to tell a little bit about Man Ray, the other artist in this scene. Yeah, so Man Ray was born in Philadelphia in 1890. He moved to Paris in July of 1921, and he's well known for photographs that he made of a lot of well-known artists and intellectuals of the era. One of his most famous photographs is actually a photograph of the famous muse Kiki de Montparnasse. And this picture was actually sold earlier this year for $12.4 million, yeah. which set a record as the most expensive photograph ever sold at an auction, which I just thought was very impressive. And I actually do love that photograph. I even have like a picture of it on my journal. So <laughs> yeah. Can you go ahead and describe what the photograph looks like for the audience? Because Yes, absolutely. It. So basically you see the back of Kiki and it's basically her nude torso. And then she has the holes for the violins painted on her body. And so it's just, it's a very striking image. And I really recommend that you check it out because it's, it's stunning. So, yeah. Man Ray is another yeah. person that you may not know who he is by name, like, like, but you've probably seen a picture of his out there in the world somewhere. And so Man Ray is one of the characters that we meet, and he comes in at the same time as Luis Buñuel. And Buñuel uh, was born in Spain in 1900. He moved to Paris in 1925. And he has a very long and impressive career. Um, so as a filmmaker, he has 35 directing credits and then 42 writing credits on IMDb. And so it's um, really interesting. I wasn't really familiar with him at all before watching this movie. So it was nice to just kind of read up on him a little bit. And Jen, I think you were going to talk about the, um, the scene where I think 
Gil gives Buñuel the idea for his 1962 film, The Exterminating Angel. Oh, yeah. I didn't really have much more to say about that scene other than, um, yeah, Gil just goes up to Buñuel and he tells him the plot of the movie The Exterminating Angel, which is basically these people go to a dinner party. And after they're eating, they can't they find out that they can't leave and everything kind of descends into madness. And it's really it's kind of the point of the joke is that Boonwell's like, I don't get it. Basically, why can't they leave? <laughs> like He just looks perplexed. I mean, and that is a film that, to be fair, he thought of like, you know, what, 40 years later, 30 some years later after this mm. movie would have been set. But I haven't I haven't really seen Boonwell's work other than watching like Unchien Andalou as preparation for this. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool to have these guys, though, in the film, Man Ray, Boonwell. I wonder if they're people Woody Allen admired or if it was just like a the, the most famous surrealist, maybe. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting, too, because they're surrealists and they seem to be the only people who really believe <laughs> Gil at that point. And it's just like they can have a normal conversation even with him explaining that he's from a different time. And I just found that cute. <laughs> Yeah, it actually kind of made me want to get a bunch of surrealists as a friend group to hang out with. <laughs> yeah, so after the surrealist scene, we have a few plot points that happen one by one. Gil keeps going back to, you know, back in time in the car. T.S. Eliot is waiting for him in the car on one of these journeys. Um, on that same journey, I believe, a detective has been sent by um, Inez's father to watch out for what Gil's doing, and he'll come into play later again. When Gil gets back in time, he finds out that Adriana has gone to Africa with Hemingway. Then back in the present day, Gil somehow magically manages to buy Adriana's old journal at one of those kiosks by the Seine. And he takes it to the Rodin Museum guide who starts translating it for him. And he, Gil finds out that Adriana's in love with him and she had a dream of him bringing her earrings and then they made love. And this sparks an idea in Gil which he handles in a very half-assed, crappy way. Yeah. 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 In this next scene, Gil, his fiance Inez is out of town, is going out of town with her parents. And so he goes into Inez's jewelry and steals a pair of earrings to give to Adriana. He's about to go out the door to give, go back in time and give these earrings to Adriana when Inez and her parents come back. And this is like by far my least favorite scene because like Gil's just trying to hide that he stole the earrings. And then Inez is, they're trying to call the hotel like detective to try to get the maid in trouble for stealing the earrings. I hate everything about this scene. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, At the same time, I wonder if it makes Gil a bit more human, you know, because so far he's such a fun free spirit and I really like that about them. And I, and I re- resonate with that. And I feel like he had to have maybe some character flaws. <laughs> and also it really highlights kind of how wrong she and Gil are together and how awful she is too. Her entire thing is it, it's not even about getting her earrings back or anything like that. It's she wants this hypothetical thieving maid fired. That's what she wants. She doesn't want her earrings. She wants to cause mm. some damage. Yeah. Yeah, she also refers to the maid as the help. She says, Gil, you always side with the help. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, Lee pointed that out. He's like, never, ever date somebody who calls people the help. Yeah, I agree. 
it's it's just one of these like this is a very Woody Allen scene to me though this is like this very like awkward domestic drama this is like the point in the movie where Gil seems the most like a Woody Allen standing character to me just kind of Mm. fumbling and nervous and then he manages to get the earrings like into the sink and then pretends to have found them but yeah I guess it's right it does it does make him flawed I guess he's been flawed the entire time by sort of cheating on Inez I mean he hasn't really cheated yet but you know by intending to cheat on Inez. But this just, I just wish he'd have, you know, the guts to like, be honest, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, I don't understand why he wouldn't just go out and buy like, I know, a pair of earrings to begin with, right? <laughs> I know. It's like, he does. It's, it's, so not like he, it's not like he doesn't have money. It's just like, yeah. It's, <laughs> how long does it take to buy a pair of earrings? Okay, so now we're going to begin the spoiler section of the movie. So if you have not seen Midnight in Paris, and you want to be unspoiled, Please stop listening right now. Okay, so Gil goes back to the 20s. Time seems to be running at a different rate there. Adriani is already back from Africa. And Gil finds her single and they take a walk at night. And this brings us to kind of the fulfillment of the romance in the movie, which is very brief, actually. He takes a walk with her. He kisses her and he gives her the pair of earrings. And this is their moment, I guess, but all of a sudden their moment is then interrupted by a carriage that pulls up and summons them to join them. They're off now to La Belle Époque, which is, of course, we remember Adriana's favorite time period. And just really quickly, in case your listener is unfamiliar with what La Belle Époque is, it is the time period in France roughly between the 1870s through the beginning of World War I. Um, it translates to the Beautiful Age, and it was called the Beautiful Age in retrospect. So it kind of goes with the theme of the movie that we think of the past as beautiful in retrospect. And it was kind of called the Belle Epoque because it was a respite between major European wars and it was a time of cultural advancement in Europe. So yeah, the horse and carriage pulls up and Gil and Adriana get in and they end up at the restaurant Maxime's, which was like the fancy restaurant to go to if you were like one of the high class people in that time period. And what do you guys think about this introduction to La Belle Epoque? Was it a surprise when you saw this happen in the movie? Did it seem inevitable? No, this was definitely a surprise. And it actually took me a minute to catch on. It was only seeing the fact that there was no actual electricity. I was like, oh, something's happening here. (laughs) Yeah. I think for me, it was like when I noticed that everybody was dressed in the fashion of that era. You know, the women in the giant dresses and like big hats with the feathers and Adriana's there in her flapper dress. Thinking back about the first time I saw the movie, I was pretty surprised that they would travel in time again. Um, But it's nice. And yeah, after Maxime's, uh, Adriana has one destination she wants to go to. And unsurprisingly, it is the Moulin Rouge, which I would be there too. They end up seeing Toulouse-Lautrec and they join him at his table. And then Toulouse-Lautrec is soon joined by Gauguin and Degas. So we've got heavy hitters of that age. And yeah, I would I wouldn't mind being at that table. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. I would just be mm-hmm. afraid of getting tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair, I guess, fair. Okay, so Adriana is kind of descended upon by these artists of the time and is quickly offered an opportunity to design costumes for the ballet. And she is in heaven. So Adriana takes Gil aside and says, Let's never go back to the twenties. To which Gil reveals that he's actually from her future, Adriana's future, and he loves the 20s. And he doesn't want to stay in La Belle Epoque. 
And here's a clip of the rest of their conversation. What do you mean? I, I dropped in on you the same way we're dropping in on the 1890s. You did? I was trying to escape my present the same way you're trying to escape yours to a golden age. Surely you don't think the 20s are a golden age? Well, yeah, to me they are. But I'm from the 20s and I'm telling you the golden age is la belle époque. I mean, and look at these guys. I mean, to them, their golden age was the Renaissance. You know, they'd rather, you know, they'd trade Belle Epoque to be painting alongside Titian and Michelangelo. And those guys probably imagine life was a lot better when Kublai Khan was around. I'm having an insight now. It's a, it's a minor one, but it, it explains the anxiety, my dream that I had. What dream? I had a dream the other night where it was like a nightmare where I ran out of Zithromax and then I went to see the dentist and he didn't have any Novocaine. You see what I'm saying? They're, 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 these people don't have any antibiotics. What are you talking about? Adrian, if you stay here though and this becomes your present, then pretty soon you'll start imagining another time was really your, you know, was really the golden time. Yeah, that's, you know, what the present is. It's a little unsatisfying because life's a little unsatisfying. That's the problem with writers. You are so full of words. But I am more emotional. And I'm gonna stay and live in Paris most glorious time. There's a lot in this scene. I love this scene. Yeah. So I think, Ed, you probably identify with Gil's anxiety dream, given your comments. Not really. That was that was more of a, a joke. But he he's so close to getting it right here. Like, I don't I don't necessarily empathize with his anxiety dream. But being entirely too nostalgic of the past is a huge problem because people are only remembering what they choose to remember, especially for times that they weren't from. And I think he's starting to get that finally. Yeah. And realize that, like, real life is always going to be just a little bit unsatisfying. But the antibiotics thing, when he said these people don't have any antibiotics, that really made me laugh just the way he delivers <laughs> the line. And um, I actually made me look up when antibiotics were invented because I had no idea. And it would make sense for Adriana to say, what do you mean? Because they weren't even discovered until 1928, apparently. And they didn't come into commercial use until the 30s. And they weren't in wide use until 1945. And that wow. has just sort of crushed all of my travel to the past dreams. Like if I, if I ever thought that that was something I could do, I'm like, well, I'm not going anywhere before 1945 anymore. As somebody who's had to have a lot of antibiotics in my life that might've saved my life at a few times. Like, yeah, nope. Did you guys know that, that that was so recent? I was like, my mind was blown. No, I had no idea. Yeah. And Luna, did you have anything other commentary to offer about the other part of that? You know, I actually... I've grown to appreciate this scene more because I remember the first time that I watched the movie, you know, I was really heartbroken that Adriana was choosing to stay there and, you know, they weren't going to be able to be together. And then I feel like over time, I just, I feel so happy for her because yeah. Adriana, she's choosing her job. She's choosing her dream over this romantic relationship. She's just really going for it and she's not letting Gil or anyone talk her out of it. So. It's actually pretty cool and it really highlights her own strength and motivation, I guess. Yeah, I, I honestly, I also really respect Adriana's character. Like, even if she might be making a decision that won't satisfy her in the end, 
Like I mm-hmm. admire that she's going for where her passion is, you know, and like her passion clearly does lie in fashion as well. And just being around great artists and, you know, I'm sure Gil's book is great and all, but like if you get a chance to hang out with Degas and Latrec and Gauguin, uh, it might turn your head just a little bit. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what do you think Adriana's life would be like if she would like in the Belle Epoque? I guess she becomes a pioneer of fashion design, which is exciting to think about. I mean, I hope. (laughs) That's probably hoping for the best, but I could see her doing well. Any thoughts, Ed? Is she going to get tuberculosis? She might. Who knows? But if (laughs) it's her call. It's her call to make. Yeah. I think we've we've kind of talked about this question before, but we'll, we'll go over it one more time. Like, if you were given Gil or Adriana's opportunity to move to your favorite era, would you take it? God, no. No? Okay. No, 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 no. Uh, again, my whole thing is our favorite eras, we are fond of them because of the good stuff. There's a whole ton of bad. And it's like as a white dude in his middle age, right? Like I could functionally, like if this were a possibility, probably be better off than a lot of other people, you know? And it's very much a wish fulfillment thing for people who don't necessarily face the same problems, I guess that, you know, in the past, uh, that others might. So like, I'm real against the idea of, Oh, I wish I could be a, I don't know, a Viking or some, some shit. I don't know. <laughs> uh, like, no, like, and, and that's not a, not how it works. B like, just no, just no. See, I feel like kind of course corrected for that problem you brought up because like, I've decided like, if I could move to like the nineties, the 1990s, I would do it because we had most, not all, but most of the same freedoms that we have now and technology was caught up and, you know, the nineties was a good era for like social change and like, you know, people being really into that. So I feel like because, and it's only because of climate change though, if climate change weren't a thing, I would not, I would stick right here because I want to be surprised. I think the worst part of like going back to live in the past in some ways would be, you would already know everything that was going to happen in the world, you know, and it would be kind of boring in a way, but with climate change, I'm like, Oh man, if I could like live out, if I could go back in time to the nineties, bring Lee, you know, or people I love, I would do it because I'm like, I don't really like what I see in the next 20 years in this world. Like, does that play into your thoughts at all? Like, what do you think about where we are right now with like ecological disaster? Do you want my truly honest take? Yeah. I mean, Oh, we're fucked. We're fucked. (laughs) whole whole world's gonna end in a couple generations we're so fucked uh (laughs) but i don't want to escape it either i mean it is what it is i mean i i want to escape it Mm. so (laughs) i I would be very happy if i could escape it but it's not really a thing so yeah and and you're right Mm. about the privilege aspect of it though and we've brought that up on a couple of the other episodes too i think sybil brought it up especially on the somewhere in time episode just like as a woman you aren't necessarily safe to go to many historical eras, right? So, yeah. And Luna, I think you already answered, like, is your no similar to Ed's no, or do you have a different reason for it? Yeah, I mean, for me, just being here right now, this is the best time. And I definitely appreciate, like, uh, what you brought up about, you know, ecological concerns and, and Ed's very honest take on it. But despite it all, I still want to be here. And, you know, it's it's taken some time to get to this place, you know? Yeah. Um, so now I'm really enjoying it and, you know, kind of 
being able to just be willing to be with whatever might arise, you know, yeah, whether it's pleasant or, or challenging. So, and, you know, we need good people <laughs> spreading love and kindness right now. Uh, I hope we can do that. Yeah. Another question we had was, though, okay, so gun to your head, do you go to Paris of the 1890s or do you go to Paris of the 1920s? Well, neither of them have antibiotics, so. <laughs> no, 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 gun to your head. Antibiotics don't protect against that. So yeah, you no, got to no, choose no. one. No, no, but, I, but I'm, saying, I'm saying it makes the choice a little easier because I won't be able uh, to have antibiotics in either place. So, um, probably La Belle Epoque. I respond to the art of that time quite a bit. There's something more romantic about it to me. I think I like things that are pre-modern technology quite a bit, like the steam era, the um, not having so many cars around. The, the lighting was different. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's probably dumb of me, but that's what I'd choose. Yeah. I think for me, it would be different. For me, I would have to choose the 1920s. And just because like, as a woman, I feel like you already had so much more freedom. That's true. You know? And, you know, even the way that you see the characters interacting and, you know, having the parties and, you know, even uh, like Zelda is able to write. It just feels like it would be a much more welcoming place as a woman. And for me, obviously, it's the 1920s. The music is more my scene. So that's where I would go. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to be in La Belle Epoque. I'm going to I'm going to go to the 1889 World's Fair where they built Ooh. the Eiffel Tower for it. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to hang out with Gustave Moreau and Odilon Radon, the symbolist artists. <laughs> I'll be on my own, but it'll be okay. Okay, so we come now to the end of the film's story. So Gil finds out that Inez had an affair with the pedantic friend Paul. And not because of this, but because of his revelations about his own life, Gil decides he's going to stay in Paris. And then we, one of the funniest scenes in this whole movie is just this little micro scene. Um, we see the detective who had followed Gil into the twenties, but somehow the detective is in Versailles. Like I can't, I don't know which Louis it's supposed to be like maybe the sun King himself, but he ends up in Versailles, like interrupting the King at his like breakfast or whatever. And they send the palace guards after him saying off with his head. Is really funny. <laughs> to me, this is like one of the best comic payoffs in a movie. Uh, it was a nice little slapstick insertion into an otherwise kind of droll movie. <laughs> <laughs> droll. I think that's the first time anyone said droll on this podcast. I love it. <laughs> I do have one question, though, which is how did this dude end up in Versailles? It's like nowhere near the center of Paris. Like, I know it's just a picky, silly thing, and it's really funny that he gets chased by the palace guard, but... Well, it's interesting because it seems like the time travel is a little bit related to being picked up, like yeah. in a vehicle of sorts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if he accepted a ride. <laughs> I wonder. You're right. Like, huh. Maybe he got to the 20s. Yeah. And then he's like, where the hell am I? And then like somebody came up in a ridiculous royal carriage or something and picked him up. And like <laughs> Versailles is like this detective's dream era or something like the 1600s or whatever. Huh. And everyone's just so willing to get into strange vehicles and go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Maybe I would be tempted. <laughs> if I were in Paris, I would be tempted after seeing this movie. I'm an absolute idiot with no regard for his own safety. I would also be tempted. 
It depends on the city for me, though. I don't know. I don't really care if I go back to Madison, Wisconsin in the 1800s or something. (laughs) Anyway. Mm, Yeah. So Gil remains in Paris. We see him kind of wandering around the streets. um, And then he's on a bridge at midnight. We hear the clock is striking midnight, which means that Gil has sort of renounced going back to the past. And he encounters Gabrielle, the girl who works at the flea market and was selling Gil the like Cole Porter albums. And they have a little discussion about Cole Porter. She thought of him when they got more of the music in and they're, they're going to walk together. And then it starts raining and Gil says, Oh, well, it's raining now. Are you okay? And, sh- and she says, I don't mind getting wet. Paris is the most beautiful in the rain. And it's like sort of implying that this is Gil's dream woman. And I'm not a hundred percent against people being in like these like older man, younger woman relationships. Cause I know people who are in them that are very happy but it's just so Woody Allen. And it's just like, so like, can you, could she be 10 years older once in a while? Could she be somewhat close to Gil's age? I don't know. That is my only problem with this really. Well, I have a problem with that too now. And I didn't realize that. Cause I honestly like looking at either of them, I couldn't have told you their ages. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I am now, I am now bothered in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the age difference is actually as big as I thought it was. Like, Leah Sadu looks younger than she is, so there's that. She was born in 85. Owen Wilson was born in 68. Okay. So it's a good, yeah, it's a 17 year age difference, which granted, Sharon Nicholas Cage had a 17 year age difference in Moonstruck going the other way. So, but yeah, I, I, I think, and if it wasn't Woody Allen, I might not have noticed it, but it's just like such a thing with like Manhattan and stuff. And I'm just like, the, like, it I'm just I'm just taking it back to find out that he was born in the 60s. He looks so much younger than that. Yeah, he does okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but like did you like the pairing otherwise though? Yeah, I I did enjoy the pairing. Uh for me, Owen Wilson looked so young that honestly I, I didn't really notice the age difference as much now that you bring it up. I'm considering it, but I think because we spend so much time with this contrast between Gil and Inez, you know, how they're so different and they don't really seem to agree on anything. Yeah. So to just finally have somebody that he could agree with and kind of have a shared moment with like that uh, was satisfying, I'd say. And I disliked Inez so much that anything has to be an improvement. Anything. Anything. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I do. I do like that they both appreciate walking in the rain. So like basically the qualifications for Gil seem to be she likes Cole Porter and she likes walking in the rain. And like, you know, you share music and you and, and I think walking in the rain is good, too. So, I mean, I'm not going to like go out of my way to walk in the rain and get soaked. But like if it happens to rain, I'm also not going to be like, meh. Do you get where do you guys come down on walking in the rain? It's significantly a different experience now that I don't have hair and it feels like water torture. So I, I don't like it anymore. Really? Oh, oh yeah. Just it, especially if it's like a harder rain, it just really just drives itself into into my skull. Huh. I never thought of that before. Interesting. Did you like it before? <laughs> yeah. No, I did like it before. Okay. Okay. Luna, what about you? Yeah. Like, like you said, I wouldn't go out of my way to walk in the rain, but I don't mind it at all. And... Sometimes it's actually nice to just feel it. It's like nature, you know, caressing you in a way. <laughs> yes, that is something Inez would never say. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do not resonate with Inez. 
yeah. she's pretty much as as different from me as you could possibly be. I think, which which I'm okay with, very happy with. Yeah. So, any final thoughts on anything about the end part of the movie or the movie in general? My my whole thing on the movie is I liked it more than I expected I would going in, and I still didn't really like it all that much in the grand scheme of things. That's interesting. I thought you like but when we were first talking about it, I thought you liked it, but we have recorded in two parts. So maybe like over time it has faded a little bit. No, no. I mean, I liked it, but is it something I'm going to go back and watch again? Probably not. It has been a rewatch for me, but and I think Luna, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I only watched it because you promised me there was Cole Porter in it. <laughs> was there enough Cole Porter <laughs> to be worth your while? There's never enough Cole Porter. All right. So basically, you just need the whole movie about Cole Porter. And yeah, we'll- hey, it's. I think we'll find that in double feature recommendations. I, I think I think you may be right. Yeah. So I guess we will start <laughs> our double feature recommendations. So my first double feature recommendation is another Woody Allen film, which is a little bit more fantastical, called The Purple Rose of Cairo from 1985. And I actually went back and rewatched this movie in preparation for this episode, and I liked it like a lot. Like I know I had watched it a ton when I was younger because we had it on like a VHS tape or something. And I'd just seen it a lot. But when I rewatched it, I was like, wow, this is actually just as good as I remembered, if not even better and more clever. Like I caught things that I didn't really get when I was a kid. And basically the premise of this movie is that a woman played by Mia Farrow is living in the depression with her husband, who's kind of abusive to her. And she goes to the movies every day to escape because at that time, you know, the movies were a lot cheaper and people went to them, you know, as their main entertainment a lot of times. And she goes and sees the same movie over and over again called The Purple Rose of Cairo with a character in it played by Jeff Daniels, who's this like archaeologist adventurer guy. And then one day when she's watching the movie for like the umpteenth time, this guy starts talking to her from the screen. The archaeologist does. And then he steps out of the screen and it turns out the character in the movie has fallen in love with her and he's and he escapes the movie. And it is it is that aspect of the movie is so charming Like it's like he runs off with her and then you also see the people left on the movie screen, the characters in the movie just have no idea what to do. And it's just like sort of commentary about being characters in a movie. I can't really do it justice, but it's, it's fantastic. There is a romance in it, but more of the point of it is again, is similar to midnight in Paris, this fantasy of escape, this wanting to be in a different world, you know, thinking your life would be better if you were in the movies. So it's doing that with movies and, and that kind of escapism rather than time travel. And Fantastic movie. Can't recommend it enough. Have either of you seen it? No, but I'd like to now. Yeah. And it's another movie where Woody Allen does not actually act in the movie, which a lot of the movies I like best from his um, oeuvre or whatever are ones that he's not actually appearing in. So for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. Okay. And then my second double feature recommendation is Henry and June from 1990. And Henry and June, I'm sure Luna, you're probably familiar with it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's um, based on the diary of the same name um, by Anais Nin. And it's about uh, when she met Henry Miller, the author, and his wife, June, and began an affair with Henry Miller, and conceivably a partial affair with June as well. They were very historically um, careful with this movie. They actually, the soundtrack to the movie, they compiled it from all the music that was referenced by Anais Nin in her journals and Henry Miller in his writing, 
So it's really giving you a whole atmosphere of what it might have been like to be in that time, which in this case is more Paris in the 1930s. And both Luna and I have had um, interest in Anais Nin. I used to be kind of obsessed with her. I read like all everything she wrote at one point. There was a point in my life when I probably would have been wanted to be transported to Paris in the 1930s just because of that fascination with Nin and the fashion and the music and the romanticism of that time. So if you want another movie that captures Paris at a roughly the same time period and gives you a sense of nostalgia, this is a great choice. Okay, so for my first double feature recommendation, I have Somewhere in Time, the movie from 1980, uh, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. And this is actually a movie that's been covered on every rom-com, so I really recommend that you listen to that. And it also features the theme of time travel. So I think it would pair really nicely with Midnight in Paris. Then for my second recommendation, I have the 1985 movie A Room with a View, um, which is a story I love. It's based on the novel of the same name by E.M. Forster. And I picked it because I find that the protagonist is in a similar situation where they have maybe two love prospects and they're kind of forced to, you know, consider which one they want to go with and they, you know, end up following their heart. And plus there's also the theme of kind of being in a different city. So in a room with a view instead of Paris, it's Florence. And I just, yeah, I absolutely recommend it. Yeah, it's one of my all-time favorites. I actually, it's one of the ones I chose for top five rom-coms when I was on the Force Five podcast. So, yeah, Ooh. yeah, love this movie and rewatched it many, many times. Yeah, and the cast is incredible. Oh yeah, as well. So. <laughs> and then my double feature recommendation, of which there is only one, is 2004's *The Lovely*, the Cole Porter biopic starring Kevin Klein. Just because I did not get enough Cole Porter watching this, and I'll probably just rewatch <laughs> that movie yet again and sing along the entire time and it's is it actually like quite a high quality movie too like or is it just the cold border of it all i know it is actually a really uh well done movie uh it certainly is better than night and day with Cary grant it doesn't uh straight wash cole's life mm -hmm. and uh, it's really great to hear like so the entire soundtrack is people today doing cole porter songs in a very authentic authentic ish style so you get alanis morissette and natalie cole and elvis costello doing cole porter songs and john barrowman so it's uh yeah it's really good fantastic Have it you sounds seen this amazing one? so you haven't seen it either luna no but it sounds amazing yeah i'll check it out sometime well i say this and then i have like a list of movies to watch that's like ridiculously long you guys don't even know well you might know actually <laughs> anyway but yeah so yeah thanks both of you for being on the show i don't think we're going to be having either of you on the show for some time it sounds like not until like maybe into 2023 so yeah be, be yeah. sorry to not hear from you guys for a while but well um, thank you so much for having us yeah, yeah it's been a blast it's really nice and coming up for every rom-com, we're going to finish the time travel time loop series with the sequel to Happy Death Day, Happy Death Day to You, which is going to put us into our Halloween horror rom-com series, where we will also be covering The Love Witch, directed by Anna Biller, and the 
kind of bad, but kind of fun, uh, Once Bitten, starring Jim Carrey and Lauren Hutton. So look forward to those. And yeah, if there's any other movies you want to see us cover on every rom-com, there's a small window where you might be able to make some requests. So email us at feedback at everyromcom.com if you have some requests or find us on social media. And yeah, thanks everybody for listening and goodbye. Au revoir. Adios. Ha, ha, ha.